Rick Dalton. It's my pleasure, Mr. Schwartz. I'll be mild then. Put it there. That's your son? No, that's my stunt double, Cliff Booth. Last night, we watched a Rick Dalton double feature. <laughs> All the shooting. <laughs> I love that stuff, you know, with the killing. A lot of killing. Anybody order fried sauerkraut? episode of the Film 89 podcast. As usual, I'm Sky and I'm the editor of Film89.co.uk and by the time this episode airs, it should be the end of August. So our planned summer hiatus was about a month long, which was far shorter than we initially feared, but we are indeed back and by we, I mean myself and the man who is sat on my left. Hey podcast, Neil Gaskin. Good to be back on the uh, speeding juggernaut that is now becoming the Film 89 podcast. I'm ably assisted here by my co-driver Mr Sky Wingfield stopping us all from careening off a mountain and exploding into a ball of flames yeah and joining us via Skype is someone we've been eager to get on the podcast since we started he's one of the single most talented film poster artists working today whose unique style has graced many a Blu-ray cover and film poster in the recent years and months that we've been friends with him and about 1 in 10 of our Film 89 posters of the day are usually by him often co-produced pieces with his working partner Midnight Marauder who together form Alphaville Design it is of course the brilliant Mr Antonio Stella Tony welcome to Film 89 Hey guys, thank you so much. Speaking of ball of flames, yeah, that's <laughs> you gotta you gotta keep me definitely from careening off uh, the subject matter since I'm a little bit more scatterbrained than usual uh, coming off of uh, crazy deadlines and stuff. But uh, thanks for giving me the platform for to speak about this because ever since I uh, came out of the cinema with uh, great tickets that were lined up by our wrong real crew uh, queen Becky Diana I've been kind of chomping at the bits trying to talk to anyone about this film but that that was so early on in the days where uh, people hadn't seen it I couldn't talk about spoilers really and so the initial plan was that I would go on the mother hub uh, wrong reel with uh, the pod father James Hancock and Rob Cotto to talk about this but that sort of got delayed and then kind of the urgency was gone but uh, as you kindly extended the the, the invitation I'm now like finally ready to talk about this movie that's been on my mind kind of unspooling yeah well that uh, that film that you, you're mentioning which obviously anyone listening to this now is going to know is it's going to be an in-depth and spoiler-filled discussion on what is either the ninth or the tenth film from director Quentin Tarantino depending on whether you class Kill Bill as one film or two it is of course Once Upon a Time in Hollywood so if you haven't seen the film please turn us off Go away, watch the film, and come back because we are going to be leaving no stone unturned. Yeah. And, and this time, we've actually remembered to give our spoiler warning, which we so frequently uh, forget to do. 
So, obviously, as you said there, uh, you were very kindly given um, a preview pass by the, the brilliant Becky Diana, who did try and get us one as well. But unfortunately, it would have meant that I would have had to have done a little bit of traveling and that would have uh, not really been great for me because it would have coincided with the birth of my uh, third child, which uh, has been the cause for the, the, the kind of summer break we've had to take. Yeah, congratulations uh, but, again. No, thank you very much. But yeah, great thanks to Becky for, you know, for trying to sort us out as she, as she usually does. Obviously, you've seen the film, is it, well, I think two weeks ago now? Yeah, I think shortly before it was released. Yeah, it must have been two weeks ago. And there's sort of, I was in a daze coming out of it. I saw it with a press screening crowd, which is not always the best way to see it. It was kind of, you know, snooty uh, journalists who are just chatting amongst themselves with white wine and not paying attention. And there I saw the first kernels of what would become sort of a a real, um, how do you say, uh, kind of um, sticking point for me where people laughing and giggling at Bruce Lee. And I was like, I don't know, this is something I predicted at the very first trailer reaction that James uh, posted on his Geeking with James Hancock channel. And I was like, oh, they better not do this. They better not do what I think they're doing. Mm. But it was so cut that I was uh, still thinking, okay, I'm giving them the shadow of a doubt. But as I sat there, we will go back into it later in the episode. But that was sort of a part that I was really dreading uh, as much as the Manson murders that were looming. But as I came out, I found myself really enchanted and and which was a good thing because I was actively hating Quentin Tarantino at this point right now. I I mean, I fell in love with him like we all did in the early 90s. I loved everything up to his Grindhouse movie. And then it just all fell apart for me and I became I, I mean, I really hate those movies. Django and Glorious Bastards. There's no, no uh, dispassionate. I can just watch it. I hated the hateful eight. And for me, it was almost like, as you said, this is maybe his, as he always predicts, his 10th movie is his last. I was like, oh, now it's it's actually turning sour. He's done more bad movies than good movies on his list. And I was really hoping to, to like it. It was much more fun. I'm So I'm glad uh, to sum it up. I'm glad that I could be a fan again um, with this movie. But it's interesting what you say there, Tony, about not liking some of his recent films. Now, myself, Steve Amos, and James Hancock, we did an episode of Wrong Real, I think two years ago now, where we, we went through the entire Quentin Tarantino filmography, which at that point led us up until and including The Hateful Eight. And, and whilst we were mostly positive about the films, I think we certainly did hit upon the fact that some of his later films have been a little bit self-indulgent and and certainly we were aware of the fact that there's a lot of people to whom Quentin Tarantino is pretty much, um, he's kind of become a bit of a sort of love him or hate him director. Mm. You know, is any particular you know reason that the last few films yeah, I, he's made have not sort of resonated with I you? I mean, I have a I have a theory about it. I mean, it's um, we'll go into our rankings at the end probably, but it, I think really what the Grindhouse experiment did to him, the the Death Proof his side, Death Proof, which I prefer, I actually really like it. It kind of after that, the, the, his films fall apart structurally for me, and that has partly to do with the death of his editor Sally Mankey, who was kind of his good angel. She was she was uh, keeping him from overindulging. And and she, she she made sure it had that sharp sophistication that would come full circle in the narrative and that that Tarantino vibe that was so great and all of a sudden I, I feel he's lacking the discipline afterwards after after Death Proof it's sort of what works for those movies is kind of the slapdash nature of it and then later you would feel these great scenes and this hodgepodge of a movie that kind of don't follow up on anything and I feel that I, if I may be so presumptuous to relate it to myself in 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 the in art when 
as you change your styles and your approaches, once you become a little bit slapdash with it, it's hard to get the discipline back. And I really felt that in the last movies. There was a good scene here, there was a good scene there, but they don't hang together. And they're, they're missing Sally Mankey for sure. And uh, I also don't like his period pieces. I, I think he doesn't add anything to it. When you see Django, the original from 1966, Sergio Corbucci, where he's dragging a coffin with a machine gun inside it. I mean, that's as crazy as it can get. And then you sort of see the tempered down version of that. And you're like, it doesn't work. Now, had he put them in the contemporary setting of L.A., I would have felt, yeah, that really works. I mean, that, I think, is where he rises to the biggest heights. And I love that this film is a kind of a love story about L.A. again. So we're we're back kind of in, in home territory. So, so what is your take then on, obviously, Inglorious Bastards being a kind of loose remake of the Enzo G. Castellari 1978 film of the same name? Yeah, we kind of grew up with that one. And I thought that was so much more crazy and cool. And uh, I mean, Fred Williamson, and I loved it. And I thought of the way to do that movie, I thought was always to have like a kind of Wolfenstein take on it, where there's like a chained up mutant Nazi in the basement with chains and like like a little bit like what they do here in Once Upon a Time with flamethrowers and, you know, like build your own weapons to enter this Nazi fortress with crazy crossbows. I mean, you really go computer game violence crazy. And what they did, I, I don't know, I don't want to speak out of pocket here, out of turn, but I was very close to the production of In, in Glorious Bastards. A friend of mine was working on the post-production of it and I was, I was at the crew screening of it with Quentin Tarantino here in Berlin when they shot most of it and yeah i was hanging around the editing room i saw the rushes come in i saw certain scenes and i was already like "Ooh, this seems weird and i saw his energy uh, quentin tarantino's energy was off he was kind of at the crew screening he almost seemed apologetic like sorry guys this has not come together kind of tone because they were uh, gunning for Khan at the time and they were really really rushed I was there they were panicking kind of putting this together and it was almost a kind of somber screening especially for a crew screening which is like usually super raucous everybody knows the inside jokes yeah it felt weird the whole thing felt weird and um, when it came together I didn't like it at all and then it coincided as it so does so often these days uh, it did with Game of Thrones as the popularity rises and as everybody sort of chattering speaking about the quality diminishes and you kind of end up being the kind of um the sole voice where it's going like like guys look at this it's his most successful movie and and it kind of got him all kinds of recognition and you saw quentin at every and every interview you sort of him uh, posturing up a little bit the rounded shoulders went up a little bit and as they heaping praise on him he kind of really felt like yeah yeah i got this this is a good movie and i, I that's not the impression i had at all when uh being seeing him uh, going in and out of uh, seeing rushes and stuff I, he was he really seemed like we don't have an ending we this doesn't hold together and i know for a fact that scenes that that were shot background of the bear Jew, for example, where he's in Brooklyn with the grandma, where we see the origins of the baseball bat and how that, and that would have really helped. I felt give us some background. So we love these guys. So when, when stuff happens to them, we care. And I never felt that connection to that crew, like you do in the dirty dozen or secret invasion or any of these, you, you kind of feel for those characters. And yeah, I, I, I mean, I really hated it. I felt style for style's sake, you know, the Hugo Steglitz, I hate Till Schweiger. Obviously I know all the German actors, they're horrible. Uh, I hate, I hate Christoph Waltz. He's the ultimate ham. Like he's a, he's a, he's a really good theater actor 
in Germany. We grew up with, with him watching him like bad police shows on German TV. Uh, and he's all right, but he's in no way of what, uh, you know, Hollywood made him out to be this revelation of a guy. I thought he was always a big ham. And that, that was kind of his inspiration for the next movies to come. And I, I, I couldn't watch them. I, I, was, I was horrified that this once great director. It is almost like, let me say this before I ramble on. It was always out of love. You know, I always felt he could do better. And some of the scenes would lead you to believe that there is something in those. The opening scene, the Sergio Leone take on that kind of, I uh, think there were great tension builders. And you're like, wow, yeah, there is a movie in there. But what ended up, sure, I, I hated it. This is sort of, it fell apart for me and I really didn't like Death Proof, uh, 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 not Death Proof, The Hateful Eight. And so obviously I know all those movies inside out, the Sergio Corbucci, I know all those references. I grew up with all of those. And when this movie came around and we heard news leaking with the Mansons in LA, I thought, wow, there's some clever stuff in there that could be really the Tarantino movie to end all Tarantino movies about Hollywood, a film about a film inside a film, kind of his eight and a half. But the Manson thing was daunting that, you know, that, that kind of... Um, when you know about that history, you're like, how is Tarantino going to solve this? Because his violence in The Hateful Eight was pretty tasteless in the end in that cabin. I mean, I'm not I'm not shy about violence, but I, I thought that was gratuitous. And I, I don't I don't I couldn't see the point. Do you think, Tony, that the issue is that Quentin Tarantino is in thrall with all these films by the likes of Sergio Corbucci and, you know, films like The Original Inglorious Bastards, who, which, you know, it's more like slightly more twisted, messed up version of The Dirty Dozen. You know, it's basically mm. an action war film. And Quentin Tarantino is taking the shell of a film like that, but what he's then doing is he's filling it with these sort of clever, dialogue-heavy scenes, and he's just actually making a Quentin Tarantino film. And, mm. you know, this... They they do tend to follow a certain pattern, you know. They uh, they often do tend to open with like a, a long dialogue scene which establishes character, and and then you know these are peppered throughout the film. But what he doesn't do then, he doesn't make a film of Inglorious Bastards that is anything like um, the original '78 version. People could argue, yeah, is great. You know, we we want to see Tarantino's take on a World War Two film. He gives us a Quentin Tarantino film, and in fairness to him, he only ever makes the film that he wants to make. But I can't argue against the fact that there is a lot of self-indulgence there, and I've definitely seen um, a change in things since um, the death of, of Sally Menke. Certainly with The Hateful Eight, which I just think, you know, if you're going to go to all the trouble of reconditioning these incredibly yeah. expensive 70 millimeter cameras, and then you're going to spend 25 or 30 minutes in the in the back of a of a wagon with just a dialogue scene and then you're going to spend another hour and a half in in a log cabin and not actually take advantage of this stunning outdoor locations and make a sort of sprawling western where you've got this technology to to make the most of 70 millimeter and then you're just going to sort of confine things that that was the one thing that really really did sort of great on me with the hateful eight which for me probably maybe tie in um, for my sort of least favorite Tarantino film, Neil, what do you think about the, the more recent, the most recent Tarantino films? Because I know you're a big fan of uh, of his earlier things. Yeah, I, you know, I'll, I'll be completely honest. I mean, like you know, like we said, the editing it is, you know, it is a point that it is suffering now. The films aren't as tight, and as Tony was saying, it just seems to ramble on far too long sometimes. And like you say, sometimes you can get a succession of scenes that are almost like muddled together. Mm. I'm sort of, I'm going to be splinters in my backside now, sitting on the fence. I'm torn between whether he is too self-indulgent or whether he is trying to sort of expand his sort of art. And the one thing you could say about sort of early sort of Tarantino films, they were all sort of 
crime-ridden, sort of fast-talking, smart, wise-cracking, reference, you know, retro-referencing films. And I suppose perhaps he's looking not to be seen as a one-trick pony sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes mm. it works. A lot of the time it doesn't, unfortunately. Moving on to tonight's film, I think we are seeing a bit of a return to form, though. Mm. Yeah, definitely. I think sometimes it, it could be as simple as trans, like in the case of Jackie Brown, just taking the black exploitation. And he he was great in that because the the the, the temptation of of just filling that wall to wall with sound and afros and like funk and and shaft, and he resisted that, and he gave. De Niro a different role and he made Samuel Jackson look very different in 90s and 90s pimp and he did that so well in putting that in 90s LA that I thought that was great restraint and that's why that movie works it's not the black dynamite horrible laughable wink wink uh, I'm gonna get you sucker version Definitely. of a black exploitation mm. movie it's so good and when he does that it could be as easy as uh, having the hateful eight um, like having it now and I think a lot of people have been clamoring for this. It's like, what does Quentin Tarantino say about now? And I think this is why this movie, also Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, really works because it functions as a comment on 2019 politics, uh, social issues. It really does. And for during Kill Bill, the, 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 his kind of um, it didn't he didn't have to make those sort of comments. He could just be an indulgent kung fu grab from everywhere and be a, a child in a, in a toy box. But now the kind of landscape has so much change around us. Being careful with your words, uh, you know how how the left has actually confined us, and so it's it's very interesting. It's a touchy subject, and I think that's why though this movie really works and why it's it's causing a lot of derision, which is great these days. I mean, which movie still can you know? So I, I think we will get into it, but I think sometimes it's as easy as making it a little bit more up to date. And now we're, like you said, Neil, he, we're back in LA and it's, he knows this. And so he's not so kind of uh, distracted, I, I, I would call it like, oh, you know, I'm going to put this here and I'm going to make this quote and I'm going to make this. And when you make quotes in a Western about a Western, it's less interesting. But when you're now playing with a kind of actors that play a Western that we can look behind, it becomes really, really interesting. Fred Raskin, he's, I just listened to, I got to make a shout out on the fantastic um, Pure Cinema podcast that was just recently on. Quentin Tarantino himself speaks about about two and a half hours uh, about his movies and his references there. Uh, you really got to see seek this out. And you see him so enthusiastic and you fall in love with him and whatever he said, whatever you think about him, all falls away because he's just giddy with enthusiasm about these films that he's programming at the New Beverly and I think two or three episodes later, we get his editor, Fred Raskin, who took over from Sally Mankey, who did uh, kind of Fast and Furious movies and then Django Unchained and Guardians of the Galaxy, Bone Tomahawk. And he speaks about Quentin now trusts him more. So I... This is also a relationship that probably has to grow over time. You need to trust your editor. You need to, you know, work closer together. And I feel with this movie, it's a lot better. Everything kind of comes together. It might have just been simply that they had to get to know each other. And Quentin just got overburdened with taking all kinds of roles, whereas now he can kind of listen to his partner and tell him, like, we need to get rid of this. We need to get rid of that. Yeah, I, I've listened to that episode of Pure Cinema Podcast. It's a, it's a great episode. And, and Tarantino's enthusiasm just... It's front and center. It's not about him as a filmmaker. It's about him as a programmer of the New Beverly Cinema and why he's chosen these films and and sort of thought process behind that. And you know, it's just his passion for film, as it's always been, is boundless. And and you know, as much as he was born in in Knoxville, Tennessee, he spent the majority of his life in Los Angeles. 
So when, you know, initially the title of this film was announced and we knew it was going to take place in Hollywood, obviously, you know, Los Angeles is Tarantino's sandbox, so to speak. Before you even saw, you know, the first trailers, Tony, what were your thoughts when you heard that it was going to be covering the events surrounding the, the, the Charles Manson murders? That's a, that's a tough one because obviously, even though it's not a good uh, text now, it's been widely dis- disproven. But when uh, Easy Rider Raging Bulls came out and that was kind of for us, uh, for our generation, the understanding of putting it all in context and th- th- that documentary. And we always saw that innocence, that loss of innocence uh, with the, the killing of Sharon Tate of Hollywood and then actually the hippie culture. There's a lot of violence in the hippie culture, a lot of negativity. And, you know, that that's um, an I hadn't seen it that way. I hadn't put it all together until that book and eventually the documentary came out. So, you know, more or less the details. Our generation definitely, I feel, knows a lot more about this and how violent and disgusting and and sick this whole episode is. You really get apprehensive because especially uh, maybe the, the director of even Reservoir Dogs, I was like, okay, that's restraining himself from the Sergio Cobucci original jangle with, with the ear scene that where he makes him eat his own ear and it, Quentin tempers this whole thing and even Pulp Fiction, the violence is there but it's cut away from it, it's 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 done in interesting ways, It's whereas kind of in The Hateful Eight it's just a splatter fest at the end and you're like, oh, are we getting this director to kind of uh deal with Sharon Tate and how how disgusting is this going to be is this Quentin's middle finger to all the PC culture and saying you know what fuck you this is how I see it which I grant him and which everybody should as an artist but at the same time I I I I rarely find myself agreeing with the kind of pre-warnings of things I was more concerned with Bruce Lee and the depiction of Bruce Lee but I definitely felt the alarm bells there I was like oh I hope he doesn't misstep completely now and just become lost in the Quentin to you I hate now and yeah I'm glad to say I think this is I have a kind of plus and a minus side as we go through this in my head and on the plus side the ending it sticks the landing so damn hard this movie that you leave and that's important for a movie it could be a meandering it could be have some plot holes it could be things but if the ending rocks the house and you leave the cinema that I mean that really is a is a good way to seal um all these little plot holes along the way and it I feel this totally does and yeah I was definitely worried how about you guys well, you know, if we're going to talk about a Quentin Tarantino film, and Tarantino is well known for his sort of messed up, chopped and changed sort of narratives where, you know, his films don't flow in a linear fashion. We could go chronologically from the start of this film through to the ending that you speak of and, and sort of discuss it that way. But this film, and, and you know, to play my cards early on, this film sticks the landing in such a way that what it did for me, I'll, I'll be honest with you, I, I was sat there for probably the majority of the, of the first two hours of the film, enjoying it, but probably thinking, mm. is this scene necessary? You know, do we need to see a five-minute scene of Brad Pitt's character Cliff Booth uh, feeding his dog? <laughs> do we need to see as much of these scenes with Rick Dalton and the trouble he's having as a failed actor? Um, you know, with with a stumbling career, what is all of this leading to? And all the time thinking in the back of my mind, I, I what I wanted was a sort of Tarantino's version of Zodiac. You know, I wanted mm. a really gritty sort of retelling of this horrendous crime, which Charles Manson and these fucked up people that he had under his sort of spell, so to speak, and, and the horrendous mm. things they did to you know numerous people, including 
Roman Polanski's eight-and-a-half-month pregnant wife, Sharon Tate. You know, as the film was playing through, it sort of ingratiated me towards her character. Even though I don't think her character is particularly well fleshed out, you certainly kind of end up rooting for Cliff and Rick, who are obviously the two main leads, and most of the story revolves around them. But that was another question I was coming up in my head, thinking, how is this going to play out? Why are we spending so much time with these characters if eventually it's going to be all about Charles Manson and these kids? who commit this horrendous crime. But then it got to the point where, especially when we see uh, Margot Robbie, you know, heavily pregnant, bearing in mind what I've just gone through personally as well with the, you know, the birth of my third child, mm. I was beginning to think, right, if this is falling within that strict sort of defined Quentin Tarantino universe where, as in Inglorious Bastards, we see an alternate version of how Hitler's death actually went, you know, by the time we got to the last reel, I was thinking, do you know what? He's he set me up perfectly for this now. I actually want it to go Tarantino's way. And when it explodes in that sort of crazy orgy of violence towards the end, I was almost clapping. And it was like as if the mm. previous two and a half hours of film, which I'd been kind of unsure about, it's like watching a jigsaw puzzle being put together. And you're not really sure about what the final picture is going to be. But then when that final piece is put in place and you stand back and you see what a well-constructed story he has made... And in the you know, several days which have passed since I've seen it, it's been one of those films where I've had to keep quiet about it on social media because I, you know, I don't like to sort of play my hand before you know, we release an episode. But fortunately, I saw it with Steve Amos and uh, a friend of his. And, and we spent about 45 minutes after the film just sort of breaking it down. Yeah. Because we just, you know, we, we had to digest amongst ourselves what we had just seen. Having stood back now and seen... You know the, the the final sort of puzzle. I I think it's it's certainly going to be proven how good a film it is on second and third and maybe fourth viewings. But based on that first viewing alone, I think it's the best film he's done in a long time. For sure, Neil. Neil, how how did you? Well, how was your? I'm kind of the other end of the scale to you guys because I've literally seen it about two and a half, three hours ago. Oh. <laughs> My first opportunity to watch it. I gotta be honest, I'm totally blown away by this film. I think you know as Sky was saying. This could have been his version of Zodiac, and we could have had a more sort of um, we could have had a more sort of close factual sort of rep- representation of the actual murders. The thing is with Tarantino, this guy's already said the title gives it away. Once upon a time in Hollywood, this is a fairy tale. This isn't a true a true life, yeah. you know, recreation of the film. About sort of twenty minutes into this film, I was thinking this is possibly the greatest film I've ever seen by Tarantino. <laughs> nice. And then about for the next twenty minutes, I was. Sort of deeply questioning whether this film was actually going to go anywhere. Yeah, yeah much yeah. like much like yourself, I was dreading the Bruce Lee thing. Um, yeah. Although I'm more prolifically into the boxing, I, you know, I grew up with Bruce Lee, and you know, I still to this day I'll still tell my son every time he's struggling with something, I'll say, "Remember what Bruce used to say: you've got to do it ten thousand times before it becomes habit." Exactly. You know, so I've sort of lived yeah. my life by his mantras. This is like such a return to form for him. I, like you said. I think a lot of the time when he's doing the the sort of the Kill Bills, the you know the Hateful Eight type films, like you say, he's putting his style into a genre. Yeah. This is like a return to form where we get the sort of Tarantino isms, if you like. Yeah. But it's probably set in a time that he's based most of his sort of prolifically good work on. You know, if mm-hmm. we look at the sort of the, the music, the sort of attitudes, the fashions, the styles. This is basically a lot of, you know, even the sort of Jackie Brown stuff, which is sent, you know, like you say, in the 90s, could easily be, other than the sort of the cars and the the fashion, set in the 70s, you know? Mm. I'm still absolutely dumbstruck by the film. Like you say, going towards the end, I was 
praying. I was actually, you know, thinking, I don't, I don't want this. I want to be right because I'd already said to Sky, I think he's gonna, I think he's gonna pull it in glorious bastards with this. When I can't see him, I yeah. can't see any film studio saying, yeah, we're gonna show that. You know, especially in today's climate. You know, yeah, yeah. I think what it was it was about a week ago that um, we were we were all discussing as we do um, a part of the film eighty nine like WhatsApp group when we were sort of discussing upcoming episodes and the like. And we were just chatting about the controversy, you know, surrounding the depiction of Bruce Lee, and then obviously his daughter has gone public with the fact that she's not happy with how her father was portrayed. And then, you know, I said, oh, you know, Neil, I got concerns myself because I'm a massive Bruce Lee fan. I don't want Tarantino to sort of, you know, do any injustice to him. And Neil did say, he said, look, this is, this is, uh, you know, a fantasy. This is, and whatever you said sort of alluded to the fact that you thought they probably could go the way of, Mm. it sort of, it falls within the the alternate Tarantino universe. Yeah, that's that's what I mean. I mean, so there is, factually, it has been said now, there is some basis for truth in this with um, Bruce Lee actually getting involved in a little scuffle on a set while he was doing Green Hornet. And um, it was a, a judo practitioner. He was an uh, amateur champion, Olympic champion. I think Gene LaBelle, who was a stuntman himself. It's not quite played out the way it's played out here by all accounts. And I say, this is only reading the, the sort of brief interview I read with Gene LaBelle. What he was saying, it was a more sort of playful sort of almost a pissing contest where Bruce was sort of saying that his, his style would beat Gene LaBelle's style. They ended into a little knockdown tournament, much the same as what happened with Cliff, where it was best out of three. But Bruce got the, the upper hand first of all, and then Gene LaBelle locked him up and, you know, sort of actually threw him on his shoulders and then ran round playfully with him. By all accounts, while he was doing it, Bruce Lee was actually laughing, saying, like, put me down, you know, once you put me down, I'm going to kill you, once you put me down, you know, and it was more of a sort of, almost like a sort of bantry sort of sparring session. And by all accounts, it was a case of Bruce Lee looking back then and saying, with his style of the Jeet Kune Do, the sort of mix of styles, which at the time was pretty much unheard of, Mm. um, that his grappling skills needed to be improved. And they say, if you look at him, enter the dragon with the arm bars and the type of of almost first incarnation of mixed martial arts, you can see what he was doing there. A lot of that is the sort of judo holds that he's doing there. Famous duel with Sammo Hung, and but actually all his fights end in submission holds. Uh, at Way of the Dragon does he he kills Chuck Norris. He uh, uh, the Russian fighter in Fist Fury. He's a submission hold. So Bruce Lee, Jet Kundo. I mean, we're getting this is a big fat juicy curl. If we're getting into the Bruce Lee right now, I'm ready to throw down. Oh, that's but a whole I, that's a whole other episode, my you friend. Said, yeah, yeah, you said so much that I wanted to say a little bit. If I can predate that, as uh, as we're speaking of the atmosphere and the anticipation we're going into this and then kind of experiencing this movie as it unravels i felt very much a mix of you two i i sat there and i i wanted to go well it's like with every marvel movie or star wars movie i was like i hope this is a good one i hope this is worth my time but with tarantino it's a little bit more personal because you're actually rooting for him you you want him to do well i want to go out on on top especially if we can only get two more movies or one more movie so you kind of like Let's go. And it's ponderous and it kind of, you know, it, it dwells a long time on the characters, which, like you said, Sky, and, and now in retrospect, seeing the full puzzle picture is a great analogy. It makes so much sense because we do care for these guys now. It's 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 it does what Inglorious Bassus didn't do. It we now when Cliff and Rick enter into that melee at the end, we 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 love those guys with all their faults, with all their racism, with all their kind of privilege of that time, with all their broken characters. We love we know who these guys are, and as they throw down we fist bump because that's what we would have wanted to do to the Manson family like yes this is ultimate wish fulfillment but well you, you can you can look at it that way with sort of toxic masculinity that I suppose it will be leveled at this film and one, sure. of the, one of the easiest excuses is to say well it's a period piece it was set in that time that was an attitude yeah. let's be honest now 
if the Manson family crashed through the door right now, <laughs> I would I would pretty much react in the same way. I would hope. Oh, I, yeah. I wouldn't care about hurting anyone's oh, no, feelings no. or calling oh. anyone names. Do you know what I mean? No, but it's even better because we know it's not just wild scumbags breaking into a house. We know what they did. So the yeah. joy of violence being done onto them feeds itself through history. We're, we're a little bit like Hitler, but with Hitler, it's less personal because with Hitler, like six million, you know, it's, it's numbers you cannot. It's 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 beyond that. But with Manson, it's the visceral, like you said, it hits a dad, it hits every mother, it hits every father. It, it's just like, it's just more private, the whole thing. And and they just picking the wrong house is just, you're like, oh shit, this is, and you just giggle with joy. Like, this is where they're going. And you kind of, as you discover what he's doing, you're like, yes. And of course, I know that the flamethrower in the beginning, I was like, oh, you know, why are they going into these? So these payoff moments, which I always required in great action movies, like, oh, is he going to use that gun that he showed us in the beginning? Is he going to, is that villain, that second boss level, is he going to come through with it? Which I felt so frustrated. And the last one in Django, we never see the Red Hood gang do anything. They just fall on the wayside. And the last shootout is kind of just played for a normal shootout. It doesn't revel in its own setup. It doesn't enjoy what it takes time to set up. And here I feel it pays all those beats off. I mean, I love the dog. I mean, everybody loves the dog. I mean, uh, it's uh, the, the pit bull. It's such a great character development for Cliff because as we see, it's almost like a long goodbye uh, take when we see the when we see him feeding the dog food and 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 having that moment with her and seeing that Cliff, despite all what we know about him, he's a good guy because of the way he deals with this dog and how he trained this dog and how it it takes a lot of time, but it's so paid off in the finale. That, that, that you don't mind watching all of this and I yeah I can only imagine on a second viewing you 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 enjoy all those I was distracted looking at the posters looking at what's on TV listening to yeah. the sound on the radio I mean there's so much going on in every scene for me this is Pitt's best role in God knows how long yeah. but what a what an interesting character as well because you know at certain points you're thinking this guy is a sort of like gung-ho you know uh, stuntman who's you know this and that and then we go to to the extremes of is he actually a murderer? Is he a war hero? Is he? <laughs> yeah. Is he's good? With, but then he likes his dog, you know. But you know, so we got a whole sort of John Wick ethic going on there, and there's such sort of mixed emotions towards his character. But I actually found just all the way through, just literally every scene that Cliff was in. I mean, him turning down Pussy in the car because she hasn't got ID on her. You know, he, he then he, he tells Pussy that she needs to be 18. She needs to prove she's 18 because he's dodged prison this long. In the very next scene, he's talking about being on a chain gang. Which we, you know, you think, yeah, that's going to be bullshit because he knows that these hippies, you know, they're they're, they're very anti-police because he says, you know, I, I broke a cop's jaw. Yeah. So I think he's what he's doing. He's he's playing to his perception of what these people would be like if he wants to sort of, you know, stay safe amongst them. That's it's so I the whole kind of. I mean, it's chock full of, 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 of just quotes and movies. I mean, my brain was like in most Tarantino films, but I mean, this is hitting a period where I really know my shit. I was just from Billy Jack onwards to the moccasins and you're just like, oh, oh, oh is this going to be paid off? Is this going to be paid off? And I think another strength of this movie is as soon as I, I was like you, Sky, I was like, ah, I was very much in my head. I was looking around. I was looking at posters on the wall studying. It. I was I was not sort of it was drifting for me, but in a good way. I was enjoying being in the world, but it was as time ticks you're like uh, we got less and less time here are they going to show something what's going to happen where's this plot going and as soon as it hits spawn ranch and the mansons this movie wins for me all the way i think that's a gigantic beautiful amazing 
meta comment on right now. I mean, casting of the Manson family of all these kids of rich actors and Hollywood elite. I mean, Kevin Smith's daughter is in there and, and they're all kind of Lena Dunham, all these people that really I I don't like personally at all. I mean, I don't have anything against kids, but the aggression and sort of left-wing aggression, that's a new thing that we, we would all call ourselves very open-minded and, and sort of, but now something has happened in 2019. The left is actually being very aggressive and, and, and they're overburdening, they're forbidding to speak. It becomes very fascist in a way. And this sort of in a clever, amazing comment mimics the climate we find ourselves now. And it's the climate of 1969 where we're being sort of pushed out as the old guard. You don't have a right to speak. If you get a son these days, you know, he, he has to learn all these new gender rules. But actually Tarantino now feels compelled to make a statement about this. Say what you will about it. You can have your own opinions. But I think this is where it hit me as I was watching it and I found this so clever and I was like, oh my God, I see what he's doing. And and I loved it. And I loved the expression on their faces and I loved how dangerous they were and how meek each individual was. But the tension as soon as Cliff hits Spawn Ranch is, is palpable. That Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the flies, the buzzing. And now Tarantino, again, he's flowing here. He's like using the whole palette of it, of his possibilities. We're hearing sounds, we're seeing, it, it's pure Tarantino enjoyment for me. It really kicks off with Spawn Ranch and it doesn't let go. At this stage, I was thinking, is Cliff going to get killed off? And that would have been a big shock yeah. to me. But the way he sort of faces down almost everyone without, with just such an air of sort of confidence and not arrogant, no arrogance to it. But it's done. Mm. It's done for the best yeah. reasons as well. I mean, he's there just to just to check and see if I'm sorry, I can't remember his name now, but Bruce Dern's character just mm. to check if he's okay. Mm. Like you say, it just builds that you can feel a tension building as he was walking down that corridor. It, when you mention Antonio Texas Chainsaw Massacre and when Cliff is walking up to that little shack, it just yeah. reminded me of that shot where you see under the swinging chair where Pam gets up and she walks into that house in, in exactly. Toby Hooper's film. You know, the tension and you're just waiting for that explosion of violence. And when things don't sort of play out, you know, as we expected them to and Bruce Dern, he, yeah, you know, he actually is alive and then Cliff is able to walk away. But then when he gets to the car and he finds out that, you know, the, the switchblade has been used to stab his tie, you think... We get, ah, the, we right. get the payoff. Yeah. We get we, the payoff. He's, he's not going to get away from this. Things are going to turn sour. Yeah. But then, you know, but by the time, um, you know, the girl goes off to get the guy on the horse and, and she comes and he comes back Tex. and you think, yeah, Tex is going to take out Cliff. Cliff is screeching off, and and you know it is perfectly played. It's holding off on the expected outburst of violence because we've seen it so many times in Tarantino films. It, it's all set up. It, it's all playing with our expectations because we know at some point there's going to be an explosion of violence. Either if he's going to go around the factual route and it's going to be that horrific crime that we're all waiting to see, or if he's going to take it the other way, which he does. But we know that it's going to be an explosion. But he's just he's playing with us all the time, and I think. That whole ranch scene is just one of the most effective bits of filmmaking he's ever done. Yeah, he really enters another, it finds another gear, the movie, which is, it's it's important, right? It's pondering, we're learning the characters, but now what, what, what what's happening? A little bit of the Western set with the little girl, it loses me, I, I, I don't need that. But then, as it kicks off, Tarantino says it, I think, on the Pure Cinema podcast, or one of these, I heard him say that, that he as a kid was actually afraid of hippies. And you, and you feel that as you, as they peel out of the vans behind uh, in the shots and you see them putting on their pants, their gear, and you see that biker, and, uh, that child. That shop to the left you don't know who's all there you kind of in in your peripheral you're losing sight of how many are there you feel the danger for cliff and you feel like oh as he enters the house and you hear the flies buzzing that rat trap and he is squeaking it's so on the nose but that's genre cinema it's beautiful right you hear the rat squeaking in the corner and all those 
Manson characters that we know from trial or myth or legend or something, um, Squeaky From and all those people would, you know, go on to do horrific things. They're there and they're fleshed out, pure cinema style, not not with words, but through actions. And actually every dialogue rings right and true. The way they say, check on the car, who is he with? Who is this, this whole kind of paranoia, uh, drug blown minds of, of, of these kids. And then he wants to check on his friend, the, the owner of the Spawn Ranch. And it's great. It was supposed to be Burt Reynolds because that was his ultimate right, nod yeah. to kind of uh, and now it's Bruce Dern who shot on Spawn Ranch you know he did episodes of the Virginian or Gunsmoke and yeah. to, to that is that's another meta uh, take of course from 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 Quentin and he passes all those Zorro shots all those little photos of things that used to be shot shot on the lot I mean it's just yes I think this is also like you said Neil this could be now this could be uh, Spawn the Spawn Ranch scene doesn't feel period at all it doesn't feel 1969 even though it's perfectly accurate it's so like Texas Chainsaw Massacre doesn't date there was almost like a sort of zombie quality as well when it yes, started yes. start off with like a sort of cult feeling but the more yeah. the more and more people that were surrounding him like you say it was almost becoming and the look and feel of it was all like sort of like like a sort of romero type you know when they when they sort of crowded him around him yeah. you know but again it was just like the way that pitt's character was just sort of playing such sort of confidence and such sort of steel determination i mean it was i, I was sort of like internally yelling just get the fuck out of there just mm. get get mm. away you know you you, you know you're yeah, not gonna great. win this one you know but then yeah you were still rooting for him to actually go in the house because, like you say, I thought the minute he goes in this house, someone's going to put a shotgun from underneath the, the sofa or something. But Tarantino, of years ago, we would have had that. Yeah, you know, I would expect like a Pulp Fiction type thing, but it didn't. It didn't build up. You, you talk about setup, and we've already seen Cliff's sort of beat up little caravan at the back of a driving theater, and we see inside the caravan. There's a handgun, there's a revolver yeah. on the table. Now, I was thinking, right, he's clearly lingered on that handgun. He's put it in that shot because it's going to be a bit of payoff. If things turn sour at the ranch, he's going to have the handgun. But he doesn't. It's, he gets through purely on his own cheese, confidence. He's, he's, a, yeah, he's, he's yeah. a stuntman at the end of the day. He's risked his life countless times. You know, he, he's a war veteran. He may or may not have killed his wife. You know, there's a lot about this guy that we don't know. But what we do know about him is he, he, he is very confident, very capable, and he probably isn't really that scared of anything. Well, I was going to say, I remember watching an interview. I can't remember the name of the, uh, the stuntman now, but he said, basically, he said, they were asking him, you know, do you fear pain? Do you fear this? And he was like, yeah, you know, I'm scared of everything. He said, I'm just more conditioned to it. You know, yeah. I know I can take pain. And I think there would be that, like you say, that almost sort of where we would draw a line, someone of that profession would be more prepared to push it a little bit further, to take it a little bit further, you know? Yeah. And I think there was yeah. de that was definitely reflected there, wasn't it? Yeah, it's definitely the whole thing about those two guys, those two guys that we follow, kind of Burt Reynolds, Hal Needham, uh, that relationship between yeah. Bert and his stuntman. It's definitely a, a, I don't know how to say, a love poem, a love song to that generation of men. Maybe our fathers too. They weren't all great guys, maybe, in every respect, but they were tough guys. They were kind of, they had this inner justice of doing certain things a certain way. And and uh, we kind of lost that in this generation. It, it's not saying look, these guys are perfect. It shows plenty of stuff. I mean, the whole Natalie Wood thing that we have to mention later on, uh, the, the death of his wife. Uh, there, there's so much of this mythology. We know these guys are not good. But when it comes down to it, they have qualities, okay? And they have these qualities that that are uh, we enjoyed watching in those films and the kind of honesty of those stars. And, and many many of them had to serve in wars. I mean, m many of the, the, the old Hollywood were, were kind of war heroes, which we know... Um, 
uh, Brad Pitt Cliff uh, is supposed to be. Definitely beyond even being a stuntman in fear, he he's seen war, he's seen action, and he's not going to be scared by some some some. Somewhere. But still, I mean, I find I'm in awe of Tarantino in this scene because it's a difficult thing to do. The way Lena Dunham arrives, they they whisper in their ear, and then she gets them back from that 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 horse riding expedition, and the way Tex is shot. And this is a huge problem I have, but it's also beautiful the way Tex almost gets a better hero shot than Bruce Lee when he's riding back it's the it's a western right now and we're like wow this is a western on spawn ranch but it's with the mansons and it's uh he, he pulls off tarantino it's not easy to get that architecture right there and to make it feel not disjointed like in these other movies where it's like oh a funny thing here funny thing there it's really a steady pounding beat towards the end text taxi scene there is probably more of a sort of sprawling sort of western shot than yeah what Tarantino has achieved in the, the, the two or three residencies he's tried sure. to do you know Absolutely. but like you say set in a contemporary time set in a time that's right for him I think well let's talk about the setting there's so much about this film that you know obviously as the end improves is unconventional and like you know when you've got Cliff Booth spending five minutes in a scene preparing dog food earlier on it's at that point that if you're aware of where it's going to go that this is not a conventional narrative with protagonists following a predestined path this is a two and three quarter hour immersive experience of what it's like to live in Hollywood back in that period if, if you're going to go along with that which I maybe wasn't you know early on in the film but by the time you know I realized what was happening I, I actually fully went along with it one of the things I was conscious of from the very beginning is how absolutely meticulous the recreation of Los Angeles or Hollywood in 1969 was and you know at the credits and seeing John Dykstra's name come up you know mm. a guy who was responsible for countless films Star Wars no less he's one of the most experienced special effects technicians in the business you know I like to think I've got a pretty good eye for the use of CG I cannot get my head around how absolutely flawless that Los Angeles looked I could not see a single fault a single thing that pointed towards that film being shot in 2019 it looked as if they'd basically gone in a time machine and gone back in time and filmed Los Angeles it, you know the, the film wasn't perfect and I think when they were recreating Rick Dalton's TV series you know in black and white in four to three ratio I thought it, it you know I'm not being funny I could probably do a better conversion with video on my iPad and make it look you know grainy and yeah you know. the, sorry sorry to quick interject the big problem here is the the great escape because yeah. that looks so good oh you want to see the rest the of the great, film like the great this. escape scene <laughs> <laughs> you know, this really saddens me the fact that there's people of a younger generation who are going to sit through this film and they're just going to think that that is just a completely recreated scene I saw that film with, with Steve Amos and, and Tony Sower who is a, a friend of Steve's the, the three of us were literally slack-jawed when that scene came on and, and when it ended I think I actually turned to Steve and I just went holy shit exactly it had the reverse effect on me I was like this is so I want to see the rest of the film looking like this now literally sat there in the cinema today on my own and said wow aloud as I was watching it that's how blown away I was yeah which exactly. you know if you sat there watching you can give your mate a nudge and sort of say my god this is fucking awesome I was sat there you know totally friendless Billy no mates and <laughs> audibly went wow because I, I just couldn't get over how great that fucking looked. Yeah, and especially for us, our generation. I mean, we all grew up with this. This is the Sunday movie. And when you, when when Steve McQueen jumps a motorbike over over the barbed wire, I mean, we all fist bump. But we know the cooler scene. We know what happens. We know the baseball. When he turns and he has the baseball uh, glove with the and we're like, yes, it, it's. I mean, uh, this is fan service in the best way, and it's done in a kind of in so much. Uh, what we it's a love fest to old movies. It's a love fest to that time. It's a love fest to those guys. And 
and seeing them being able to pull that off finally because you know we all had those star wars moments and peter cushing is back and it never looks right but how seamless that stuff was it it was mind-blowing and and the great thing is the scene is just something that's playing out in rick dalton's mind because obviously steve mcqueen took the role over him he never actually got to make the great escape but he is in his own mind come up with what could have been if he'd taken that role and that's all that scene is yeah he's pictured the entire film with him starring it yeah you sort of get the impression that he's you know he's gone over that he's watched that film if you like all that version of that film a hundred times at least in his head and it was just like amazing like you say the sort of the references towards you know all the things like like, one of the the Italian films he did and he went with Terry Savalas and stuff like that and it was it was never overdone it was never overcooked Mm. which is the one thing I was really worried about because obviously like we say we know that Tarantino is influenced by this sort of time period we know that Tarantino reveres films you know from this sort of era if you like and I thought this is going to get towards the beginning when you had the sort of NBC uh, jingles, and I was just thinking, this is going to get too laden down now. With nostalgia. Yeah, with nostalgia, with him paying homage. To it's, it's going to be like Stranger Things. Well, it's, it's going to rely purely on nostalgia. That's why I said to you that the third season of Stranger Things, it basically just turns to 80s pop videos, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Exactly. That makes you turn the opposite. Makes you makes you. Exactly. But everything with this work, the soundtrack, I mean, nine, nine times out of ten, we were getting these sort of great sort of tunes, these great sort of tunes, but they were playing through a car stereo, so it made sense. Yeah, it wasn't. No, forced. I mean, it, it wasn't just there for the sake of a, you know, like you say, just ticking a box, or you know, if you like, giving Tarantino a little bit more of a sort of wet dream, if you like. But what, you know, what, what Tarantino's done with the pacing of the film and sort of lingering on on character scenes, which a lot of people have, all, I've already seen criticism of what he's done. All he's done is stuff which Richard, Richard Linklater has made a career of doing. Yeah. But what Richard Linklater has done is he's just done it in a standard narrative, this telling a story about you know these characters playing out their lives. Um, you know that's not a criticism of Linklater at all. I think he's a fantastic filmmaker. But when Tarantino sort of veers off the ranch a little bit and tries to do things slightly differently, you know, and, and sort of more than anything, you know, just tries to pull us back in time, he's getting criticised for it. And a lot of the criticism I'm seeing about, oh well, this is just glorifying the old type of Hollywood where it was run purely by white males. It's not glorifying it. They've already established the fact that this is going to surround the events leading up to the the, the murder of, of Sharon Tate. That means it's going to be set in August and or you know, July and August of 1969. The time frame of the film it's set. If you're then going to have a story about actors and Hollywood, because you know again more than anything, this film is a love letter to acting, filmmaking, and, and you know the the older Hollywood system. Then unless you're going to completely change history, yes, you're going to have it dominated a certain demographic but that is just how it is it's not glorifying it it's a celebration of film if, if we look at if we look at our most, sort of most basic sort of role model here for Rick Dalton as in a TV cowboy that ended up having to go to Italy to make spaghetti westerns it's Clint Eastwood it's Clint Eastwood yeah yeah, yeah. It's Ty Harden. It's it's a lot of those guys that that kind of well let's say if we look at Clint Eastwood now and his political views now yeah, he's still unchanged. He's still exactly the same person that would have been there espousing because he mm. comes from that era. It was almost that sort of Shatner-esque type thing as well. I was feeling with um, big star of a TV show talked himself out of you know another yeah. season and now finds himself having to do you know um, cameos in, mm. in, in, you know, in pilot seasons. You know, Tarantino always, no matter what he does, there's always someone out to get him. And I just think with Tarantino, you know what you're getting. You know you're gonna have on your nose. Violence. You know you're gonna have, uh, you know, racial slurs. You know you're gonna have, um, you know, politically incorrect phrasing and, and attitudes. None of it is ever 
for me, ever glorified. I can see from people's perspective about problems they've got with Tarantino and what he's done and the fact that he seemed to have an almost entitlement to have his characters use the N-word with such abandon. And that did rub people up the wrong way. And I can completely understand their problems with that. And, and a number of other things that he's done in his films and, and why he's often seen as being controversial. But you could put a sort of regressive spin on anything that he does. But you, you've, you've got to look at the fact that he isn't shying away from certain character traits which people would have had back in this time period and, 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 as, and as Tony was saying as well you know there is a sort of slight leaning now well more than a slight leaning towards everything has to be a certain narrative everything does, has to yeah. fit into a certain agenda yeah. and the difference is we all know look I'd love everyone to hold hands and the world to be beautiful and full of rainbows and unicorns yeah. but it's not it's not and no. there are people out there who are nice people yeah and if I'm watching a film I don't want everyone to have to learn a lesson I don't exactly. have to want every. It's, if it's important, if it's done just for the sake of shock value, then mm. nine times out of ten, most cinema audiences will pick up on that straight away. If it's important to the narrative and it fits in with the character and more importantly drives the story along, then why not? Yeah. And yeah. it's definitely a richer world having him there and being – Carantino does himself no favors. I mean he's quite of an abrasive guy and I think sometimes he can come off like an asshole, just just De- like an asshole. Definitely. But directors, you know, having to control all that world, wrangling all that – they were often assholes or, or, or strict guys. But when we see like on the Pure Cinema podcast, when you actually get him down and he's very apprehensive, like who is this guy in front of me, which you can understand with sort of his level of fame and as – then the people disarm him and talk about movies. Then he li- lives up and then he becomes a child and he becomes so open and, and fascinating and pick his brain. There's probably nobody alive who knows more about the minutia of B and C movies than, than he does. And and sort of and that's where I'm totally on board. And then when you hear him, like we're, we're going to get into the Bruce Lee thing, but when you hear him defend that sort of stuff and his aggression towards it and his abrasiveness reacting, there you feel like, okay, I, he's a little bit cornered here and he comes off like a douchebag but that's just him let's see what's actually on film let's let's look what what he has and that's why i find myself so happy that i can defend him again where the, the last ones i was like yeah just tear him apart and it didn't happen they didn't tear him apart they loved him you know they kind of completely lo- loved and glorious best and so so i was put in a weird like sort of like we are right now we're put back in a position to actually having to be a little bit more conservative. Our generation has to turn back the clock a little bit and say, let's not pour the baby out with the bathwater. There are certain things that are of value in that time, especially. And let's let's tell the story of these guys. And he makes sure to use these kind of guys. I mean, this is Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio. During our time, when we grew up, those guys were not to be liked by any man. Remember that time? Yeah, I, mean, I do. If, yeah, you, they were literally... if you were like a Brad Pitt fan, you were out. You were like, what? You like Brad Pitt? You like Leonardo DiCaprio? Titanic? Get out of here. I, you, can, and... I can't remember what episode it was, but we had to choose favorite actors. Not best actors, just favorite yeah. actors. Yeah. And I brought Brad Pitt up and I said to you, I can remember the sort of Meet Joe Black, Legends of the Fall, poster yeah. boy Brad Pitt. Yeah. And then all of a sudden I was watching like Tyler Durden, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And from yeah. then on I was like... I. I because yeah. he was literally like, like you say, especially DiCaprio for the longest time. Yeah. DiCaprio, 
I mean, if you look at like this boy's life and you know uh, whilst eating Gilbert great and stuff, these are great performances, but they were totally overshadowed by he was just a guy from Romeo and Juliet. He was the yeah, one yeah. my girlfriend fancied from Titanic. Well, what you know, it's, <laughs> exactly. And it's it, uh, sorry, and th- th- to finish that off, that ra- ramble that I had, it's exactly that uh, that meta aspect that he now puts those two together, a generation of hunks that you know that, that those blonde guys, and now they're actually playing the grizzled guys. And I would have scoffed at that casting. Uh, like you know, ten years ago, I wouldn't say what you casting who as you know <laughs> Burt Reynolds and Hal Needham. No, way. <laughs> you know, and and so it's it's playing with that the vulnerability Rick Dalton has when he always breaks out crying and Brad Pitt says don't not in front of Mexicans. It's like it's exactly it hits that mark to where we know those guys. Come on, nobody can put a PC angle on that. We know how that's intended and yeah. meant. You know, that's it's 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 part of a language that you grew up with watching westerns and cinema and action movies from the sixties and seventies. I mean, you just have to be that educated i'm sorry uh, we're not indulging any of those comments no, when definitely. it comes to bruce lee however yeah there i got problems well let's let's go on the bruce lee then let's yeah, go like, on to like, bruce lee. Like, yeah. the, the bruce lee thing when i was watching the film i i was thinking exactly like a lot of people are I, I didn't like the way he was treated you know being a huge fan of his and and just having digested every little bit of interview footage and and anything i could of bruce lee from you know being you know a young child upwards i didn't like the way he was treated i was given some solace in that towards the end when you know, the film is telling me, no, this is not your reality. This is not your sort of Earth 616, so to speak. Yeah. This is an alternate reality. But one good, one thing that Neil does, and I've seen countless films with Neil, and certainly something he's better than me at doing, me and Neil could go and see a film, and an hour later, Neil is completely sort of, in his mind, digested what the problems with the film might be. Whereas I will, I will take a day or two to sort of mull over things. And this I'll, is a nod. Yeah. <laughs> now, so Neil is, you know, Neil is sort of at a disadvantage today because he's only seen a film a few hours ago. But I've, you know, I've seen it days ago now, so I, I've had time to chew over things. You're know, going back to the, the portrayal of Bruce Lee. That Bruce Lee scene, that is Tarantino's use of what um, the Marvin Schwartz, not Schwartz, Marvin Schwartz character explains to Dalton at the beginning. It's a character we know and respect, in this case Bruce Lee, being set up as a heavy for the purpose of failing against a new character yeah, yeah, okay. of, of Cliff Booth yeah. 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 they're trying to set you up to be you know, the heavy and everything just like Bruce Lee was falling into the trap of, of taking these smaller roles Bruce Lee then stepped away from her and then went and said no you know, I, I've got my talent I've, I've got my you know, ability it's unique I'm actually going to go back to Hong Kong I'm going to make all of these amazing films which are going to be incredibly successful Hollywood will stand up and take notice of me and lo and behold then in 1973 what have we got? End of the Dragon there's that way of looking at it it's just from the Bruce Lee point of view it could be argued that he doesn't sort of put a nice little sort of full stop a cherry on top a little bit of nice resolution but then you know there was that lovely little scene which didn't really have any dialogue of, of, of him uh, teaching uh, Sharon Tate you know, in the run-up to you know her, her sort of fight scenes on the Wrecking Crew, which again he used to do with a lot. Yeah, that's Colvin, what he did. Steve McQueen, yeah. money. You know, that's what he was doing. You know, right? I you know I, I would never say to his daughter, look, you know, you just need to suck it up and deal with it. You know that it is you know because it's about her father. What you got to think, think with Charlie, like you say, that is her father. That's so her father. Away, unless, it's, it unless it's in a hundred percent positive light, yeah. I have no doubt at all that if I was in her position, I would instantly yeah. have jumped on that. What I will say, Tony, is obviously you've you've had the benefit of seeing it for a fortnight. I've stayed away from spoilers for this film, obviously because it was released in the US a week or so beforehand anyway. But even now, because I couldn't get until today to see it, um, I've tried to stay away from spoilers. But the one thing that has sort of seeped through the sort of cracks is the controversy over Bruce Lee. 
Mm. I don't know whether I was building it up for something a lot worse than it was. When I came away, I was like, I say, I'd already sort of reasoned in my head, this isn't my reality. This is yeah. Tarantino's fictional reality. It is, Katrina, yeah. So that's not my Bruce Lee, if you like. And that, yeah, but yeah. then I was sort of thinking afterwards, was there actually that much in there that I was, of course, offence by? Because he's instantly by his daughter. But I've seen Bruce Lee do interviews where he does talk about a massive admiration for Muhammad Ali. But he also does talk about how he, you know, if it was a street fight, yeah, you know, (laughs) you know, but that was the mindset of someone like that. I think to have that sort of like champions mindset, if you like, you've got to think you're better than everyone else. You've got to think, you know, still be humble enough to want to learn Mm. things. Like I was mentioning with the Gene LaBelle story earlier, but I can actually see the potential there for Bruce Lee to have had a similar conversation. I'm not saying to that degree, Mm. but a similar type of conversation. Yeah. The problem might be the fact that Cliff was beating him up. Yes, that's right. And that's the thing. You've got a fictional character that is going toe-to-toe with Bruce Lee and coming away pretty much unscathed. And that's that's going to be a lot of people, and you know, certainly a lot of hardcore Bruce Lee fans are going to look at that and say, no, complete bullshit. Bruce Lee would have one-inch punched him into that car and it would have been Cliff's you know, imprint left in it, not Bruce Lee's. The, but- other, the other side to that is, how does Cliff defeat Bruce Lee? Kicks and high kicks. Mm-hmm. He can then throw him into the car. It's a well-known fact that Bruce Lee in Jeet Kune Do never threw anything nope. above the knee. That's right. Let yeah. alone the waist. He never yeah. threw a kick above the knee. No. It was only Chuck Norris was was responsible for showing him how to do the high kicks now yeah. to make it look good yeah, on film. Was. Yeah. So we because you know, as, as anyone has done any amount of martial arts or kickboxing will know, you have got to know that your opponent is off guard before you're going to throw anything like a kick above chest level because yeah. that person intercepts it you know dodges it gets hold of your foot you are going to be in big trouble pretty quickly and you know again this is you know, we're looking, I, I, I don't know if I'm doing it this seriously because what I don't want is someone listening back to this yeah. and saying what, what is this didn't have a problem no, let me, did, let me, let me okay I, I had this all you know no one to talk to I've been sort of at the at the wooden dummy all alone like parrying <laughs> this all the way so this is how I feel about it I want to just clear the decks again all the way with the justifications and, and, and what Tarantino and Shannon said and anybody just the way it made me feel sitting there I mean I was worried when I saw it the way kind of he's parrying the punches and again being Brad Pitt and and, you know, I don't believe in Fight Club and I don't believe in uh, being a pikey that could be anybody up just being this small. So I was like, OK, this is still Brad Pitt to me He uh, in the trailer. I didn't see how yeah. Cliff would actually ring true to me and, as a character. So I was like, OK, OK, um, it looks worrying, but l- let's see. This is probably just a good tease. And because I know, I mean, come on, you've seen Kill Bill, you know, the yellow tracksuit. You, you, he, Bruce, we all assume Quentin Tarantino loves Bruce Lee because of the obvious. Oh, definitely. Uh, 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 things we we go into this and i sit there and and like i said i saw it with a press crowd which isn't the best crowd but i mean just it made me it made my gut wrench i i, I sat there i wanted to take the cliff uh, rick dalton flamethrower to the crowd they were snickering and giggling because the problem i have with this is not that bruce lee gets beat this is not a problem i all know those gene labelle interviews and all the stuff and there are many stories on the on the sets in, in hong kong how he got challenged and who knows what's true but yeah. the way he's a fucking fool in this he's like what the I mean, he's a clown. He's a fucking clown. I mean, I sat there and I was really fuming. I was like, I cannot believe this shit. If I was Mike Moe, the guy who portrays him, I would tear my hair because he's obviously, we love Bruce. He he based his whole career on this guy. Like, how can you sleep at night doing this portrait? If I was on set, I was like, guys, I mean, I'm aware enough that this is going to be a fucking comedy bit. This is dumb. Bruce Lee, I know he was cocky. He was asserting the Asian man. He was asserting mm. the new picture of a Chinese man on screen against Japanese aggression and 
Fist of Fury. He was stepping onto the scene. He was like, you know, hey, I'm going to put everybody in place. Your weird passive aggressive white interviewing skills here. Like, oh, do you know karate? And, you know, ha, chong, chong, have you got sushi? And he was like, hey. I am here. I'm Bruce Lee. I'm my man. I'm my own man. And this is what comes across cocky, but it always comes across like a great philosopher, like very assured, not like a buffoon. I no, had. You are right I now. mean, this is what whatever. So I just feel beyond. The, let's get into a justification later on because I think you have valid points, both of you, and I kind of have my own explanation. I think it's just it feels off. It feels weird, and it feels like a missed opportunity it's a little bit like han solo and luke skywalker never meet again on fucking whatever that movie is i erased <laughs> it from my mind but it's like what the hell are we doing so because we're playing with all these beautiful tarantino's giving the tools to play with in 1969 oh i can use burt reynolds i can use this guy i can use i mean you're playing with your favorite figures and and here oh i got bruce lee i can put bruce lee in a scene so i'm not i don't have a problem to put bruce lee in a funny scene and things but I, the way it comes off i wish it just it hurt me like weirdly enough it, like personally because this is my childhood hero and all kinds of things and then the snickering of the audience the idiots are, oh yeah this guy's a fool these idiots not knowing what was on screen what actually this is actually what i think cuts through all the arguments back and forth of him defending and shannon and anybody taking it it's just the, the way it made you feel in that moment and that rang really badly with me and it's giving a picture of bruce lee to a new generation that i don't want out there no matter what fantasy or anything so that's just beside the fact Tarantino of course is in the right is you have turned me around at that time as much as I've tried to pacify myself and like mm. I said I was probably building myself up for something a lot worse because of the controversy that was sort of bubbling and me and again by trying to avoid spoilers I'm only grabbing the headline and actually reading the article you have totally turned me around you were 100% right yeah, Tony Bruce you Lee should not be playing no. as a buffoon you, you, you say that your time spent on the wooden man prepping your justification for you know why this criticism is valid yeah you're absolutely right because well bruce lee would never have made those stupid noises if he was genuinely trying you know in a one-on-one -on -one with someone because his philosophy was you're never going to waste energy for a start yeah. everything's going to be completely you know efficient and and using your body to the absolute maximum potential so all of that dancing around that wasting energy is something he wouldn't have done and yet you know the, the mike mo portrayal of him is clownish and Steve and I were, were lucky that the audience we were with it did seem quite a mature audience, and you know there was oh, th there, there was laughter at the genuinely funny bits, um, but I could definitely feel an air of you know an uncomfortable air doing that. Yeah, there was an air of unease. Yeah, yeah. My my screw my screening was gross, and I I still have a tough time for for this with, with you know I'm I'm obsessed with this, and Bruce Lee was my second wrong real episode, but I still have a tough time even UFC fighters getting it wrong. You know they're real fighters and they don't know the difference between kung fu and karate and getting it all wrong. It's just something that always stuck in my cross since I'm six years old. I cannot handle this, and I felt I've taken the flag over oh, oh, for for him for many for many years. Not that I had to. He's a world star over. And but it's always it's. It, I feel the discussion is weird too much into the territory of who would win a fight. That oh, like Muhammad Ali or him. It's a lot of things his wife said later on that were not in his best interest. She 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 kind of made all those weird Muhammad Ali statements. Never from his mouth. He was always admiring him. He he uh, uh, he said he's the the best he would win in a fight so i feel this is going too much in this direction i'm talking more about the portrayal which feels for tarantino it's just off and weird that he would take this very hurt 
weird personal take on him that does not fun and not cool. And I don't like when Tex Watson gets a bigger hero moment than Bruce Lee. And and so I have certain speculations about why this must have soured. So either uh, just trying to rectify why you would put this in your mind. It's the yellow tracksuit from Game of Death that's all over Kill Bill. Yeah. Either there must have been some quarrels with the Bruce Lee estate that might have soured Tarantino and he's like, oh, I'm going to show you. I have the last laugh with Bruce Lee. Then it could have been he's good friends with David Carradine. We obviously know the history with David Kung Carradine. Fu, got a lot Fu, of hate yeah. and flack for taking away Bruce Lee's uh, series for The Warrior, this idea that he had for a long time writing, and Paramount just stole it from underneath – oh, whatever. They stole it from underneath him and made uh, this horrible kung fu show, which I already hated when it was first aired <laughs> on TV. You know, it was like It was a, a bad show with this, this horrible slow motion David Carradine as a Shaolin <laughs> monk. And one of the biggest missed opportunities in TV or film history to not to have Bruce Lee in a multi-season, uh, you know, uh, warrior's path uh, thing. So these are things that I think I, I I feel with Tarantino that he takes things very personally, and they and and he 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 almost like Sergio Leone did, Sam Peckinpah did, the great filmmakers do this. They pay them back through the film. So it feels a little bit like this. This is obviously pure speculation. I don't know, but it's also something. It's it's a definitely a choice he made here that when you go sit through dailies when. Even Brad Pitt, I heard, was uh, a little bit worried about what was shot, and he didn't want to beat him. But I feel, again, this is not the main issue. It's just how do we do it? And he has all the rights to show Bruce Lee that way. He, that's the first reaction Quentin Tarantino had when he got attacked. He's like, well, that's that's how I see it, and Cliff Booth is a fictional character. He could be Bruce Lee, could be Bruce Lee. I was like, okay, that's not the problem. The problem is how do you, how do you choose to honor this man who— I assume meant a lot. These movies meant a lot to you, but obviously not. Do you think, just playing devil's advocate for a second, we've naturally assumed that he's a massive sort of Bruce Lee fan. Mm. Do we not think that this is perhaps what he's trying to do straight away with this scene is is jar us from the fact that we're not seeing history playing out? I don't know. Yeah, okay, this is exactly, you're right, exactly. So there's a big clue there, a big, big clue for film nerds because we haven't even gotten into the posters. But as the shot zooms down, and I'm like all over the place because I'm trying to catch posters, I'm trying to follow plot, but there's a big Torah, Torah, Torah poster, banner, giant, over coming down from the crane shot. Torah, Torah was released in 1970, but the Green Hornet, which the fight is placed on, the Green Hornet set, thing, what was that, 66, 66, 67, yeah. So that's a big clue this is not even reality that makes sense on set this is as cliff is remembering on the rooftop and this is how i made peace with the scene even though i'm still hurt but i picked i made peace you know how guys in their own minds when i was in a fight i totally beat this guy and it becomes bigger in your mind it starts to grow so his cliff booth's own mythology of why he got thrown off that set he probably was just a drunk harassing girls or whatever or they didn't want to be on the set but in his mind it was because he beat bruce lee he was kicked off the job so this is how i made peace with myself because he's as takes off his shirt and he gets the hero moment and the whole audience gasped while brad pitt looks great at his age you know and and we're supposed to believe you here the scene is setting you up Brad Pitt is a bigger star than Bruce Lee and I'm like the blonde Bruce Lee I'm like ah, I don't like this yeah but like you said that that actually worked that works because much much like Rick's playing out the great escape in his head exactly he's playing out that he beat Bruce Lee exactly that actually so that's works yeah. peace with it with the big Torah Torah that's it's, I mean that's a giant 
a jarring Easter egg. I was like, oh, what is this? Where are we? And then the Bruce Lee haircut, obviously not matching from the from the Green Hornet. He has kind of got the Enter the Dragon shades. and uh, but, but whatever, that's just making Mike Moe look more <laughs> like Bruce Lee because he's not shredded enough. Let's be honest. Like, he's oh, not definitely not. No, he's not, exactly. And that's, <laughs> that's one of the things that bothered me is, look, could, couldn't he have taken an extra six weeks you know, exactly. with a personal trainer just to get completely shredded, get that body fat down to zero? Don't expect him to have the same sort of exact musculature as Bruce Lee. Yeah. He was a pretty good body type fit other than the that. Irony, the irony is I was watching a video the other week where he was showing the training that he did for this film and looked and looked rich. more shredded yeah. than he was in the yeah. film right <laughs> Tony obviously being an expert on film posters and yes I like you saw that Tora Tora poster and I nudged Steve and it's something we never followed up on in our later conversation in the car park about the film I was going to say ooh that came out in 1970 now this was summer of 69 I can't see any way that that poster could have been created over a year before that film's release because Tora 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 came out in September 1970. Now it was it was an American Japanese co-production. It was Richard Fleischer, Kinji Fukusaku, and one other Japanese director. Yeah, Kurosawa was supposed to shoot it, but he got replaced because so the, the Tora Tora maybe yeah you like is, you know, is maybe, it the case of one of these films that was in could have been production for such a long time. Could have been, but it's, it's, that's know. like four years. Uh, it seems weird, especially having that font already. Especially now, as we get into the minutia of the world building, which I love. Like you said, how do you create physically Los Angeles 1969? For me, it was what I fell in love with the movie. What as a poster designer, a maker who's still holding on to the handmade poster uh, for dear life. I'm not doing anything digital. So this is a demo movie poster movie. We start up with a close up on a big smile outside Rick Dalton's house and it zooms out and it's the zoom out of the fictional spec, uh, Western that he did. And it's a giant poster. It's this hand painted poster. So from the moment we go here, as uh, the precursors of the teaser posters came out, uh, there's a whole, we, we're probably going to get too tangled into this, but that I, I made a whole thread on it on Twitter. We are in the midst of like accurate detail of copying styles of the 1960s to into the 70s of posters, and and I, it just it's it's all over the place, everywhere from the streets, and you see it. I mean, it's just minutia over minutia. And to make such a big mistake, it it it's a big signal to have to say like, oh, we're now in the fantasy. We're now in the fantasy world. It's just weird that Quentin uh, wouldn't bring these defenses up, but I guess that that's him. Then he just shoots back and he doesn't he doesn't want to explain himself which every artist they shouldn't explain themselves i mean that that's fine yeah the, I, I mean the movie posters are all over the place and it's it's actually um more meta than anybody thinks because i feel sort of that's my cause i've been carrying that cause for over yeah 10 years at least to to make sure we remember those artists from that time because the movie poster art is often forgotten you, you made a great episode with paul shipper where, where he talks about a little bit about his influence and drew struzen and for us in Europe, the Drew Struzen was obviously a presence, but Renato Cassaro was the poster, Italian poster master, who worked from the 60s until 1999. He still did Cliffhanger, Dances with the Wolves, Dune. Uh, he worked so late in making handmade posters that he was asked for this. And as the first posters came out about this, we're all in a rage. You're like, how can you make a film about 1969 and use these awful Photoshop blurs? They, they were so bad. Little did we know that probably they had this planned all along and, and, and Tarantino made posters of the world rick dalton's fake filmography 
into an actual physical presence as teasers that would be posted in Cannes. I mean, this is so clever and so fantastic to me and especially uh, probably goes by unnoticed to most of people. But to use Renato Casaran, I was speculating very, very early days when I first saw the shots. I was like, I can't believe they're using him, but he's retired. I know he retired very grumpy and said, I don't, I'm not doing this anymore. The computer has just ruined it for me. And to, to actually bring him back for this and make him copy one of his own posters from the 70s to have rick's pose is it's the return of hallelujah from 1972 with george hilton it's the exact pose of that it's just so genius i was like i was in awe and i was just studying every bit even details that you see for a second the vampire killers poster in sharon tate's house the french version it's a it's i mean I need to watch it again because I need to scan this movie with a, with a fine tooth comb and, and go through this. But I thought this is where for me it came really – it rang true and it, it actually had another level, another gear. And Tony, Besides it, for, for, just, just tell us about a little package you received in the post from a mutual friend of ours earlier in the week. I was uh, ringing the bell early for this movie and and figuring it out. And um, there's a great article which everybody can look up by Adrian Curry from the movie posters of the week by Mubi. I will post it along this episode thread and it's called The Real and the Fake Posters for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And it goes into the detail and actually confirms a lot of the the, the suspicions I had and, and, and says who worked on what as we see these kind of cool Italian Locandina formats reused for action movies Rick did in Italy. And I was really like, into this for a while on Twitter now and um, Becky Diana great Becky Diana now as this falls under Sony pictures now she actually made sure to get, get me a set of those promotional posters which are super rare so there are four pieces uh, Stephen Churney, who did the uh, 80s posters for Labyrinth Ice Pirates Quigley Down Under he did, he's great he did those sort of 80s, um, uh, 70s uh, Sergio Corbucci action versions, and then the two Renato Cassaro ones, which are Nebraska Jim and uh, and the other one where he's sort of lying sprawled out. And so, so I got them. And uh, yeah, thank you, Becky. This is besides getting me the tickets, I also got the posters in my collection. Very rare. Pretty cool. Pretty cool. Yeah, very cool. So yeah, it's like like uh, Neil said it before. We have the you know we have the Telly Savalas one, which is from Land Raiders, and they sort of inserted. DiCaprio in there, but you see only for a second, and that's by Jean Masky, who did a great, the iconic Bruce Lee series, by the way, from the 70s. He did the whole, the time, the first time these movies came out collected, uh, the four Bruce Lee films, uh, Sands, uh, Enter the Dragon. Uh, that's all by Jean Masky. So he's using those little tiny quotes or the fake uh, movie, um, which is a great title, The 14th Fist of McCluskey, which is kind of a play on the on the secret invasion or a dirty dozen. That's uh, Howard Turner artwork and in everybody's house is actually you see something and you see it in the streets there's a there's a great um as you as you go around west hollywood and musso and franks you see uh, elaine hanlock's posters those are posters that kind of did these i'm sure you saw them they're giantly blown up on the side of buildings it's like a kind of psychedelic art and a nostalgia for old hollywood it's kind of was released in the 1968 and it was kind of the chaplain and those but done in comic style so those are all over there they're actually in the fight scene with bruce lee on the side of the the of the kind of studio lot there so yeah this film i, I need to revisit it's it's full of that and uh, i i i a lot of original pieces are by like quentin's um personal private collection and a lot of things have been very cleverly altered to uh, put Rick Dalton in and I've I've as I came out of the movie and I had nobody to talk to I did all these alternative posters um myself for Rick Dalton's uh career 
uh, posted those all on Twitter as a kind of thread for, for the last 60 days. I was supposed to go to work and I, I had terrible deadlines, but I was just sort of in Rick Dalton's world. I was just like, oh, I want to do that. I want to do that. It just gives you this fantastic... I have been checking him out throughout the week, mates, and I, I've been trying again, thinking, oh, God, is this a spoiler? And I was like, no, he's not going to spoil anything. I could just tell he was a tribute, yeah. you know? Oh yeah, they're, they're amazing pieces, and we we've retweeted them on Film Eighty Nine, and you know a lot of our listeners will want to know this anyway. You know, as much as when I was talking to Paul Shipper about the various tax he, techniques he employs, obviously you you're completely non digital. Yeah, and I know it's hard to say because so many of your posters vary in the amount of detail uh, that's in them. But what is the average sort of time from start to finish of creating? You know, the 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 average Tony Stella piece. Not that there's anything average about your work at all. So those I was cracking out, you know, uh, one a night, you know, on the side as well. Wow. I was working on other jobs. But since th that's the great part about digital or not non-digital work, you can draw. I mean, I can draw. I can draw anything. So it's it's fun. It's actually fun. You scribble and you, and, 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 and you just scan them and you fill with colors. And, and, and watercolor is a quick technique. It draws really quick. It dries really quickly. I never sketch anything. So I'm, I'm always about... I think I've trained over the years just filling crazy deadlines. Like I, I, it's actually my favorite jobs when people call me up and they're in trouble and we need something by tomorrow because then you know nobody gets involved and hassles you about we don't like the hat on the left or could you move her an inch to and you're like no this is not digital I cannot move I have to mm -hmm. alter the whole piece again you don't understand so I found myself sort of kind of the last of the Mohicans uh, Chingach Gok here sitting by myself mm -hmm. drawing and uh, yeah this has been a huge cause for me because I think there's no bigger consensus among movie lovers that we love these posters and yet nobody listens we see more and more digital stuff pop up through agencies that nobody likes and we all find our love back through the movie posters we all know those star wars posters when we first saw them out in the wild and how our imagine imagination would get triggered and your paul shipper episode is great because it goes into your longing and nostalgia that was built not only through the posters but then in the, the different covers for each region and the video stores and you know i mean i mean for example renato casaro uh, one of his biggest uh, partners, Renato Fartini, who they grew up together in the 60s in Rome, uh, studying and uh, uh, working under Studio Favalli. He went to the UK and he created all those Bond, the Russia with Love and, uh, and the, the Carry On movies. Those are all by him. So the legacy of those Pota artists and, 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 and that tiny world, that gentleman's world that they created uh, amongst themselves with the American equivalent, Bob Peake and so, is so rich and is so undiscovered and so not talked about uh, besides the shining beacons of like a Drew Struzan that more people know. It's finding that, giving that much love to that. I mean, this made my heart sing that, that Quentin was uh, doing that in this film. And, and it, I feel it's a real statement and people are going to pay more attention because that campaign that they ran was exemplary. I thought it was just having those posters out, triggering your imagination, all of a sudden being able to walk down the street and kind of seeing an actual Western poster with a handmade poster by Renato Cassara, it must have blown people's minds. I mean, I would have been just staring at it all day trying to rip it off the wall because it's just <laughs> something. And that's why I think I felt so compelled by this movie to just go and create right away because that was my origin. I started by just when I watched the film, I you want to interact with friends or I want to draw. I used to draw my own VHS covers because I couldn't I didn't buy the official Drew Struzan Indiana Jones. You know, I taped it off something. And so I drew my own covers. And 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 that's how I sort of got started. Just I had to relive that film that I just saw and that was a way to do it and all these jobs that I got lined up which are more or less mm. interesting now I just wish we still had a flourishing world of westerns and action movies that would ask for this art I mean I would just 
um, I could never stop. I, I, I forced myself. I just said, okay, the second Bruce Lee one I did, that's the end. I'm not going to go further because I'm wasting yeah. so much time just doing that. Tony is on, on mine and Neil's part here at the moment. We are literally stood at the event horizon. And if we tip ourselves into this, <laughs> we, we, could, we could go off into the full-on discussion about film posters and we would never end. It would just exactly. be complete. To pull ourselves back a little bit, is it safe to say that from your point of view, this is the sort of... It's like the Shangri-La of films regarding, you know, a sort of tribute to film posters. Yeah, I, I was trying to think of another. And, of course, there are, there's a great Elaine May one with Walter Matthau and uh, New Leaf, I would say. It has the, the equivalent of that for art. I mean, you just go all over the place. You're like, there's a de Kooning, there's a Giacometti, there's a, it's great. And then certain times, but I can't think of another, uh, for example, I just posted the Empire Strikes Back poster for, by Tom Jung that's in the king of comedy so you would spot these one offs or two offs but not in this degree where we just go all over the place and like i said i probably missed 80 percent. i was just sitting there just like uh, in the beginning so distracted i didn't catch any of the dialogue because i was like oh my god that's a uh, that, that's uh, that's over there that's the jean masky the red one where where i know that exact one um you know t time for killing and i was trying to see did they put rick in or na the navajo joe quote obviously with rick dalton in it though but not Burt reynolds and it's just a blur in the background uh, in, the, in the kitchen but uh, as as tarantino said in the episode is like if you pause this film it's on high definition zoom into the credits and those are really the guys that would have been in those movies and it's down to the editor it's down to the and i feel this joy was really conveyed when when he's talking about the programming of the of the of the new beverly i mean he's like he knows all those second third leads and he's compiled his own uh, separate universe in, in this Rick Dalton and I, I feel he had so much more fun doing that and I know there were tons of more scenes that he shot in the, sort of the scenes that didn't work so well for me with the little girl I know he had the full episode shot because he, mm. he just loved being on that western set so much kind of the turning point for Rick as well mind you wanted that little sort of almost sort of like telling off he gives himself about drinking and he's like you could have just had four yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Why, why did you have to have eight whiskey <laughs> sours yeah, whiskey sours that's a great scene in the trailer we just and he's like you don't get these lines right I will come home tonight I will fucking shoot you <laughs> 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 but it's it's like oh god <laughs> I, I, if I had a pound for every time I would say why can I just stop at three yeah but, yeah. <laughs> but it was like kind of a turning point but I, like you say with the little girl aspect it was almost like as if she was like this oracle what is the book she's reading I was trying to work it out it's all about Walt oh, Disney yeah. Where, yeah. Where are we now? Walt Disney or the, exactly. or the Disney yeah, you know, company Christ. are buying up everything. They're literally soaking up the you know the every last remnant of of creativity in Hollywood. They're now saying that Taika Waititi's latest project is not within their sort of remit. Remit. You know, it is. Yeah. You know, do we look into that a little bit more than we could? You know, there's. I think more than any other film Tarantino has done, maybe since I don't know Pulp Fiction or Jackie Brown or, or the Kill Bill films. There's so much detail and minutiae in this film that you're going to pick apart over subsequent viewings. Yeah. Pulling away from that, let, let, let's look at the three main leads. Um, I think maybe we should look at Margot Ruby in isolation because there's very little interaction between her yeah. and the others. But what do we think of, of Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt in this film? Uh, like I said, I've already sung Pitt's praises. Mm -hmm. um, DiCaprio, again, I've liked DiCaprio more and more as the years have gone on, as we, as we were laughing about earlier. Like, I think, from for me, from The Departed onwards. Yeah, from The Departed onwards, I'd say it was about right. Mm. But, um, you know, there's been one or two sort of films where I've gone, oh, I don't know too much, you know, so much. And I did think, with Django, perhaps he was overplaying, you know, right. but it was ham-fisted. I, I, he's... I, 
you know I could see mm. I, I, I can see people's people. issues with Django and I didn't particularly like it when I first saw it but I think DiCaprio is is fantastic in it and and to and to go so far and to be such a horrible racist dislikable bastard in that film is is for someone like him I think is quite quite a bold move and it shows yeah. that he's you know first and foremost about the the acting he he's he's you know I think it's part of the reason why he's never appeared in a superhero film well this is what I was going to say with DiCaprio and there was a sort of vulnerability to DiCaprio's character here that I have not mm. seen before he's very good at playing uh, a certain type of role if you like uh, yeah. like you say he does expand into other areas and stuff like that but this was perhaps the most natural I've seen DiCaprio and although it's not natural because he's obviously put on the accent he's got the swagger and mm. he just seemed to fill the, the boots of Rick Dalton so well for me there were like I said that scene where he's telling himself off I thought it was fucking great but it was almost like he was like sort of accepted to the fact that he was on a downward spiral mm. and at certain points was trying to kick back but it was like a lost soul if you like like I say don't cry in front of the Mexicans that he's crying in front of the little girl and he was like a broken man seeing that swagger when he came back from doing the, the spaghetti yeah. westerns it was like as if he was totally revitalised you know I actually felt pleased for him I felt yeah. pleased he, for Rick Dalton when he came back you know he, he manages to pull that vulnerability off when he's just like in the end sitting in the pool just listening to his own music and he's studying his out he's so he's like a, such a joke but such a love like one of your friends and I have a big sort of issue with DiCaprio that I didn't like him at all but as he grows older he looks exactly spot on like my cousin Vincent he <laughs> looks I mean it, that's how my cousin if he walks down the street people are scared I was like, if you, I always try to make him dress up like like DiCaprio because we could stop anyone in the street. So hang on, like, he looks head, like the he looks like Leonardo DiCaprio, and he's got an Italian accent. If he ever comes over here, we are doomed. He is yeah. he, he he a loving father, and he's not into movies, and he's not into he sort of remembers DiCaprio from the Titanic, and he's he always thinks like I'm making fun of him, and I used to definitely when he was sort of younger, but now as he DiCaprio's filling out, his head gets bigger, he's getting that weird. Yeah, all of a sudden he got that big Irish head in in. <laughs> <laughs> and parted, you're like, ah, I like him now. He's actually a tough, I believe him as a tough guy. Uh, yeah, that's, uh, DiCaprio's grown on me definitely. And, and, and it's just, I love how he plays this. He's, every time he's like, I'm Rick fucking Dalton. And then he's not, he's playing that so perfectly. He breaks out crying. <laughs> he breaks down crying. And that great upstairs, downstairs bit in the beginning where we see him getting driven up to Cielo Drive, obviously the, the ominous uh, address. And then we see Rick descend into the old LA and, and Tarantino says it. I, Brad Pitt's iconic in this. And it was definitely, his, he was willing Brad Pitt to be iconic yeah something he didn't pull off in inglorious bastards at all he was so jarring with his jaw stuck out in front i hated it oh, but yeah. he manages to do it just giving himself he does the elliot gould right it's the long goodbye it's the the, the ponderous making the cat food talking well, to yeah it's, it's like it's laconic it's it's just he's almost like it, 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 but hints to that sort of like so almost jeff bridges sort of like later stages as well yeah. where it's like effortlessly cool you, not yes. trying to be cool not wisecracking not you know over the top just the, like, almost the, just like the, the, like the scene on the rooftop boots. right he gets on the rooftop to um to to fix rick dalton's aerial and then he goes into the flashback and when you come out with a flashback and he's still on the roof, it's just that little sort of chuckle he gives yes, himself. Like to sort of, oh well, yeah. proud of himself. Yeah. Yeah.
And that's almost the movie that's this it's one of its biggest qualities that it always manages to pull back up it pulls itself back up it's like they have a problem with this scene i have a problem with this scene i didn't like the costumes in the westerns at all again it's tarantino's western problem i'm looking at every hat I'm, i mean i'm i'm a bit manic like that i don't like timothy oliphant's things i know the lancer episode he's copying i i know every detail and I, I tarantino does a weird thing again with the westerns i'm like why why can't he get this right but i never it never matters. This is stuff that really hurt me in the old ones. I, 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 it would stick with me and I could never forgive the film. It would never pull back from me. From this, every time it recovers and then we get this scene and, and the best movies I feel do that. And it's like, oh, you're looking forward to this, this little bit and now comes Spawn Ranch and now comes this. And that that's really, the structure is great. And quickly, Margot Robbie, I feel it's deliberate. She's such an angel. She's beautiful. She's breathtaking. Sort of perfect casting for Sharon Tate because that's the impression Sharon Tate made like when you see her on film and just for them to she's only seen at a distance only glanced at when she pulls them in the driver roman polanski and they're laughing and then you see the two guys standing there that's most of us it helps us to to associate with those guys because that's how we feel when we're outside of wherever the, the gatekeepers when we don't we're not let in we're not let into this world i think what, and, what what tarantino's purposely done with with sharon tate in this film with margot ruby is we haven't got to know her that well. We haven't gone into that much detail about her as a person because he wants to keep a bit of a distance between us and her just to maintain that sort of thing of reverie. She, she is someone who this film is placing up on a pedestal. She's she's perfect. She's angelic. And I think it's, again, it's setting us up to expect the worst and it makes it all the more sweeter then when it doesn't happen and when you have you know that incredible outburst of violence towards the end, which... Not that we're advocating violence, but I'm sorry in those circumstances, it is more than justified as to what oh, was three was people glorious, were going to do. Yeah. <laughs> like I've said countless times before, it disappoints me that us Brits are so reserved when it comes to you know cinema going and, and expressing our emotions. Now, I'm sure there'd be American audiences that would, che- that would be cheering and clapping, and, and that's the sort of reaction. Nowadays, I joke that. I don't know that scene, to be yeah, honest. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, that's yeah. right, yeah. And unfortunately, <laughs> you... writing a blog yeah. entry to the... Yeah, I, I, I think exactly. I think exactly. This this is and people were scoffing at him at Cannes right away and they're like, Oh, she has no speaking parts, but film is always like, Show me, don't tell me, right? So the, when film works best is when she's picking up the young hitchhiking girl. That's such a lovable scene. And we hear them just sort of chatter in the background. That does more character building than if we would see her talk about Polanski. We see her buy Tess of the Durbervilles for Polanski, exactly. which we yeah. know he makes Tess later on. Yeah. Th- those lovable scenes, those are all like, oh, yeah, this is I can see her. When we actually hear Sharon Tate interviews, she talks a bit like Marilyn Monroe. She's the blonde ditz purposely. We know she's deep behind that but that's sort of the woman she had to be to make it in hollywood in that time and she plays you know in the wrecking crew the manhelm movie which we get to see she's yeah she's the clumsy ditz and you know it's that's what she had to be and you know people have a problem that she's snoring now or like i don't know <laughs> i mean whatever that's just details that that are i think are not disrespectful at all these things enrich kind of her and like you said she's on the pedestal she's on top of the hill she's about to break through and this loss of innocence that's going to happen with her it's it's just more felt that way if then if we get to spend like half an hour with her chatting on a breakfast table or whatever i i really like that i i think she and she did a great job she was just effortless you, you've and how much time does he spend on that scene with margot ruby as sharon tate go into that cinema to watch yeah. the wrecking crew but then when we see her on screen it's it's still sharon tate yeah 
It's just yeah, that's great. I love those moments when they do it. And great mercenary poster, by the way, Sergio Corbucci. Oh, that, that mercenary poster is incredible. Yes, incredible. So and it was so that one good. that one scene, like you say in the cinema, of like, you know, comparing it to the real tape there. That one scene just giving her the glasses just to make her face look more like the sort of character that was oh like tape being shown on the screen was like sort of thing. But I thought there was almost like a sort of angelic quality to the Robbie's portrayal. Absolutely. Like she was in awe of the world. Mm. She was in you know, like you say, when she goes to the cinema and she's asking you know, well, I'm the star. You know, I star in this film. Can Which I, apparently, we- yeah, Tarantino did with Reservoir Dogs. That's he. He kind of went himself, and he's like, "Hey, this is my movie. Can I get in for free?" Yeah. <laughs> so it's like a self quote there, where that he used to do it embarrassingly too much. He said the scene with the hitchhiker as well. Like you say, it was like. Like, like, like another completely different world to us now I mean you imagine your wife or you know your partner yeah. coming home now and say they just pick someone up I mean oh, yeah. I, I'd be you know I'd be distraught if Sky told me you just stopped over and bricked over a hitchhiker you know but uh, which but, is the post 9-11 thing it, it had that much of an mm-hmm. impact to Hollywood it's like now we can't imagine flying but we remember when everybody's smoking on a flight so now it's like you would never pick up a hitchhiker and it, that she the fact that she does in her innocence like yeah that she could and it's a, actually a positive experience is exactly the, how open she was that sort of like, well, I hope you know, Joey. I hope you enjoy your journey, and you know, give it a yeah. hug, and a, you know, a sort of. It was like it was nice to see, but like, see, it was almost like this sort of naivety and this sort of angelic sort of quality to her. I really, I was thinking, well, where's this going? What are we trying to do yeah. here? You know, again, and I was thinking, is this gonna? You know, I was thinking there must be some sort of form of reverence here. And I hope they're not going to overdo it. I don't think they did. To and, be honest. Yeah, and that's what it's setting us up for. Constantly, I, I was aware of the fact that yeah, the tone is wrong. It, it's too jovial. It's too. It was almost as if like my world is so sort of candy cane that nothing yeah. can go wrong. And I thought, is it going to take an extremely abrupt, sharp turn mm. in the same way that uh, you know, totally different sort of film, but just to show how abrupt a turn can be, like uh, from dust from dust till dawn. Yeah. And nope. when it exactly, and when it hangs over, that ending hangs over, and you sometimes you're aware, sometimes you're not. Then you're checking your watch again, and you're like, "It's coming, it's coming." And when it actually is coming, or it's leading up to that night, and they're getting out of the car and they're shot in silhouette, it's scary as fuck. You've got isn't it Kurt Russell is doing the narration, and he he's yeah. setting yeah. out the specific times, and this you're now assuming is historically exactly. accurate, and now this is going to actually show that the real events as they played out. Again, it's more sort of um, subversive sleight of hand. But exactly but what it, I was it, saying. It sets you up what I was saying, you forgive it right away because what he's showing you after, like right away, you don't mind. Like Rick is going here and Italy is there, and I was, of course, I was like. Oh, I want to spend time in Rome. I don't want to see him shot this crappy uh, uh, <laughs> fucking, uh, Western on a Lancer episode. I wanted to see like, oh, I, but then I was like. Be careful what you wish for. It would have been the worst. Like, Antonio Magherini. It would have been the worst pizza baker. Okay, I'm glad it didn't show Rome, but of course I would have, like my, I would have loved to see what his Italian westerns looked like. But then, uh, but then again. The, apparently, Tony, there's, there's going to be, well, there's rumor of, as, as Neil mentioned uh, before we started recording, there's going to be, apparently Netflix may actually air a four-hour version spread across two parts. Oh, yeah, I would love that. Yeah, that would be amazing. I'm totally down for that. There's only rumours at the moment, but I'm hoping it's right. Yeah. 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 So yeah, you said, and it comes off this procedural in this Mexican restaurant here. This Mexican restaurant here. This is all L.A. mapping. This is like, oh great, the New Beverly is actually that porno theater, and it's like, oh, this is this is just done for love of L.A. But it doesn't hurt the film, I feel, because it goes into this, uh, like you said, Sky. I was like, ah, oh, yeah, this is, I'm, I like it. Like you said, Neil. I was like, oh, I'm now, what is this becoming? But right away, because of that spawn ranch scene, when they're in the car, and it becomes almost comical 
like they miss this thing, but they never lose their edge, that scariness, that that kind of like, you know, acid trip, mind blown thing. They actually give a good justification from their mind. Uh, I forget the character, but she's like, you know, we got to kill the people that taught us how to kill, man. And it's so exactly how that sounded, those sound bites. And, and, and that they actually decide to, after being shunned by Rick and having to turn around and it's, it's exact. It never, I'm like, I'm scared at this point. Although the, we know these guys are ready. We know Brandy's in the house and stuff, but it's scary as all fuck when they come out and, and that, 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 the music, the way the, the car first almost taxi driver-ish pulls up, it, it becomes another movie again. You're like, oh, the tension is there again. We're right back in the tension. So he never leaves us enough to get bothered with stuff because you're right back in another movie and it becomes like, yeah, it becomes great. I mean, I really want to see that architecture of that fight again. I, I, I was just like blown away here, over here, over there. I was like, what is going on? It's just mayhem. And it's all made all the more <laughs> brilliant by the fact that Brad Pitt is having an acid trip. Completely off his tits. Completely off his tits. Which is like, you're just thinking, well, did this help him or hinder him? I don't know which yeah. one it was. You know. But probably it helped him to stall text because he's yeah. sort of having that devil, who are you? I'm that devil. And he's sort of like, oh, you are, no, it was a different name, Dumber. Are, are you, it was Dumber than that. Rex or something. And now you're demeaning, the way they demean Bruce Lee, they're demeaning them. I loved it. I was like, yes, show these. And of course the violence, okay, just a quick acknowledgement, the violence towards the women is totally, I'm totally on board. I have nothing more problem with it, but but it is, I can totally see myself being a woman sitting there having like, holy shit, Tarantino, do you have to bash your face eight gazillion times into the wall? And then when you know the history, yes, you do. You do. You want that. She was about yeah. to kill an innocent woman and an unborn oh, child. And in the most horrific way, we cannot overstate how slowly and sick and, 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 and fanatical those killings were. I mean, over 50, 60 stabs, unborn babies. Like, it's just... Yeah, so if there's anyone that's going to be criticizing Tarantino for that yes. scene, then... You can't. You don't Do, know yeah, your history. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Brush up on your history a little bit. Go on Wikipedia. Um, you know, stead, steady yourself yeah. for some quite upsetting stuff because uh, I did a few weeks ago um, in prep for this episode and, and before I saw the film, and yeah, read some things that you know kind of stuck with me. Straight up, when when they were walking up the driveway bef bef prior to that, I was just literally thinking. Because, like you say, because of the sort of documentary footage and news footage that we've all seen, these people, like I said, the analogy I made to them earlier being zombies, they were brainwashed to that degree. They might as well yeah. have been zombies. Yeah, they that's right. Programmed, yeah. They were pure they were. evil programmed inside them. Yeah, and it's it's so that hate that you see on the ranch in their eyes and coming from the girls standing back and just you, it's so well done. I mean, the singing, the lada, it's Rosemary's Baby when they come across in the blur motion across the hill. Or it's it's such a good, like you said, Romero. It's Polanski. It's like that that zombie troop coming out of the mist, actually singing these 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 hippie songs and and being together as a family, dumpster diving. All that is accurate. They all do a fantastic job. I mean, I I would be kept thinking to myself if I was an actor if I could even take on that role the karma of a role like that and the fact that they're all made up of sort of rich kids and 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 and, and up-and-coming actress and you're like wow I don't know I would love to be in a Tarantino movie but I worry about that weight of playing a role like mm. that like, well, I can say it being honest to all the actors that involved there the younger actors there wasn't one that I thought is only there because they've got a famous parent or was only one no. there because they had a good casting no, no, agent no. or whatever like that. They all played it super... Let's be honest, it could have been something that could have easily been overplayed. They all got the tone right and like you say, that sort of eerie look, almost dead look behind their eyes, like shark's eyes. 
as they were talking. Yeah. It was well. It's exactly uh, by the way. Uh, yeah, uh, Peter Fonda, R.I.P. This yeah. mirrors the the complete thing that happened to Rick as he's co- sort of being turned down, and now he comes back and he's sort of trying to be a star again. All of a sudden, you know, we got Alo Guthrie starring in movies. We got the, the, these sons. We got we got uh, uh, Peter Fonda starring in movies. Long haired sons of rich, famous old actors, and you f- find yourself out of step of that time. And that's where that meta aspect. It's all in the casting. They don't even. All, I believe they don't even. Lena Dunham has, doesn't have to act. That's that's um, sorry, or sacrilege. For her. That's who she is. She is this generation. Like she's so good in it because I don't think she does a great acting job. She's just the choice of her. Uh, she's kind of the den mother of them. And it's I mean perfect casting. I couldn't think of a better thing. I mean when I saw it, I was like, wow, this movie has entered another meta level. And and when you see the violence done to them, it's it's really a fist bumping moment. It's really like you you are like uh you want to holler you want to go and brandy here again the dog the setup pays true that we see this loving dog and the way she sits there and she she listens when she's not allowed to eat and i mean nothing better than showing a dog on screen i mean that always makes your heart sing and when they do it right and the fact that she's there the ultimate atom bomb and the fact that uh, uh, cliff just has to snap his fingers and she goes we know that it's 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 that coming through and the way he ragdolls those and he goes from person to person and Choose Texas balls off and everything. It's just yes, yes, yes. I mean, you're really. Was any of that gratuitous? Because I didn't think it was. Tarantino in the past has almost gone to like sort of cartoon extremes with the violence. Yeah. There was there was one part where the head stomped, but I was like, well, that's blatantly like a sort of grindhouse. But the rest of it actually looked pretty bang on. The bits with the dog, I was like, I, I thought that the one girl's extended death, where she's still screaming okay, okay, and yeah. she gets, she ends up in yeah, the pool. Yeah, that's very and, like you know, now we're in a horror but then, movie. But then she yeah. was she was the one that would seem to be more sort of I'm not going to say stoned I'm going to say more trippy than the rest yeah. of them if you look yeah, at yeah, 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 yeah. and as you know with like PCP and you know stuff like that people can take bullets and you know yeah, still exactly. yeah going, they can you know? they can yeah it could have it been that at that point, it becomes comical. It becomes yeah. it becomes fun. I mean, there's a whole long goodbye dog can set up, curry cat food set up when he smashes her with the can in the, in the face. And these this these kind of things, it's like it's like a great beat em up. Like, what do you use around the house? Oh, banger into the phone, banger in there. Yeah, it's like Bas Rutten. Like, oh, looky, look over here, banger the danger, the danger. You're like you're right into this. It's like, what would you use? And so that becomes, of course, it's over the top. Of course, it's insane. But it's what we want to do to if if I can of superhero moment and it's like that Richard Private. if I could go back in time did to those Nazis and like exactly what you would want to do to the Manson murders before they happen they just picked the wrong house mm-hmm. and you're totally in on it and the fact that we know that glance that that flamethrowers in the garden shed as we see Brad Pitt fixing the area we know it's there and I had no doubt it was going to come into action because it's set up so beautifully the, the, the flamethrower and the dog uh, yeah. it, it's, it's the data spike from Robocop it yeah. is. It, it's the claw from Toy Story that we later see come up in the end of Toy Story three. It, it's it's perfect <laughs> setup. It's all about great setups. But, but you know, be, before we round things up now and, and give our sort of final verdict on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, is there anything else, Tony, that we've missed in this like sort of? Quickly, I love that there's this weird little Wes Anderson bit with the Natalie Wood analogy uh, when Cliff talks about why he can't work and because he killed his wife and we get to sort of on the boat we know that Miss we our generation again knows the Robert Wagner Christopher Walken Natalie Wood death on the boat by drowning and there was always this question because mm. Robert Wagner admitted himself they had an argument and the fact that she's called Natalie 
in this movie yeah. and the fact that uh, Quentin Tarantino programmed Natalie Wood's movies during this run in his own cinema are more than a big setup and a nod to that incident and it's cutaway and it almost feels like Wes Anderson-ish in its kind of jokey side away but it's just Hollywood minutia that if it wasn't there I would miss it I wouldn't miss that scene because it's kind of thunderball the way he cliff comes out in that with a harpoon and he's drunk and she's nagging him and the harpoon is just placed right and then we cut away and it's just enough like you said neil we don't dwell on it enough if you can do something with that scene it's there for you if you don't care for it if you don't know the history forget about it it's not going to bother you exactly yeah, yeah. And like you say it was one of those things i was hoping it, that we wouldn't get a payoff with that you know and it was perfectly done i thought yeah we're still in our mind did he did he not did you fall off whatever you know but it's it's great it's it's the, these little things and so yeah uh, sort of at the end as i wanted to say the music we could we can't even get into that but oh, there's this awesome. thing that i caught right away because i was just working on a poster for that and i was just watching it again uh john houston film the judge roy bean the, li the life and times of judge uh, roy bean uh 1972 uh, John Huston with Paul Newman. The musical cue at the end, as Rick is invited up after this violence, and we see a hope for him by Jay Sebring. He's invited up to the through the pearly gates. Shantae's alive through the intercom. It's such a beautiful fairy tale moment. The camera zooms up. We see everybody alive. The musical cue is exactly that of the opening from Maurice Jarre's score of of Roy Bean. And the title card of Roy Bean, when that musical score appears in the movie, is. Maybe this isn't the way it was. It's the way it should have been. Mm, yeah. So yeah, yeah. that's uh, another thing. Through music, Tarantino tells us something of movies about movies, but it's also a message. And it sort of has that twinkle pearly gates at the end where you go, yeah, this is rounded up. It's a fairy tale, like you said, Neil. Now we're all good because obviously we can leave it to what it was. This is a story of how it could have ended. And it's very easily could have been another version. Could Because actually Manson's were not looking for Sharon Tate. They were not looking for Roman Polanski. It was that could have that story could have ended a million ways with just one tiny uh, bit different. And we would have had a totally different uh, film history, probably. I came out of it and I'm, it was unraveling in my mind. I loved it. It's now a little bit too long where I'm always like i want to see it again i don't i'm not sure if i've seen i missed probably a bunch of things because i was so distracted by the posters but yeah i, I uh, overall yeah let's get into the rankings i think i'll start off i'm gonna I'm, i'd like to go straight for a nine out of ten i'm gonna go conservative on my first viewing what i will say i'm gonna give the film an eight out of ten very much on a first viewing what i will say is with a lot of films especially a film that blows me away the first time and this film did blow me away i'll say I could have watched that film straight away again. If you'd said to me, let's go mm. back into the next screening, with this film, I wouldn't want to. But if you told me I could have seen the next 12, 18 months mm. of those two main characters' lives, I'd have instantly sat back in and watched mm -hmm. it. I mean, yeah. score, I say, I scored it out 8 out of 10, but I say, you, you guys going to give me a little bit of a break here. Because Cause you've seen, only seen yeah. a few hours yeah. ago. Yeah, no, that's mm. understandable. Uh, Tony, what about you? No, how about you next? Because then it goes in the order. It's going to be interesting if it ranks down in the order we've seen it. Because you saw it last. No, no, yeah, fair enough. Yeah, I did. I've had a few days to digest it now. And instead of coming away from there and me thinking about it for a few hours, and then it just sort of dissipated. And it's done the opposite. It's steamrolled. Yeah. I was so enthusiastic about recording this episode tonight because I've got, you know, I've had so much to say about it. It's the most I've enjoyed the Tarantino film since Jackie Brown. Yeah. I am very rarely am I ever going to give a film a 10 out of 10 on first viewing but for me this is an easy 9 out of 10 and it is the most I've enjoyed uh, a Tarantino film since 
Well, 1997, so it's a 9 out of wow. 10 for me. Wow, wow, wow. Yeah, I would I would maybe, I, I'm a little bit, I would be 7 out of 10 because um, just as we get into our rankings, if sort of Pulp Fiction is 10 out of 10, I would give it a 7 because for me, there are parts where I know, I'll leave it at that, I can't even explain it. It's a 7 <laughs> well, out of perfect. 10 if, if Conan the Barbarian is a 10. <laughs> this is, this oh, is a 7. Please, so, please but, don't do that because I try to do that. I think if I scored a certain <laughs> film a certain score. Yeah, I you, yeah. I just, but I, I definitely... I, if I when I came out, if you were at, polled me coming out, I would have said ten. Uh, and now actually at two weeks or so, and it's 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 ramped down a little bit, but only because I know there are certain scenes about the westerns and a certain Bruce Lee bits. But those are not really. I don't have problems. Like I said, I don't have problems. I think it sticks the landing so fucking hard. It's it's it's, <laughs> oh, yeah, it's a definitely. great movie, and it definitely hey it edged its way into my top five. So that's a big. I think that's a big thing, and I'm I'm glad I'm glad I'm back on. Uh, Tarantino, um, but Team Tarantino. So there you go. So that's a, a, an eight from Neil, a nine from me, a seven from you, Tony. So averaging out, that is a film eighty nine verdict for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood of eight out of ten. Have a dream of a huge, luscious, creamy root beer float. Well, if you haven't tried one with Mug Root Beer, start drooling now. Mug old fashioned root beer in the new Twist Top bottle. So then, guys, where does Once Upon a Time in Hollywood rank in your top five favorite Tarantino films? Neil, I'll start with you, taking into account the fact that you have only just seen it. I think I know where you're going to go. Do you know what? I wasn't going to include this on my list of my top fives because the reason being I didn't think it was fair to include this film having only seen it a couple of hours ago. The more we've talked about it, and I'm going to include it, and it's, it's going to be on my top five, definitely. Oh, Tony, you have to help me out here. Do I include this or not? Yeah, I did. I did. But that's just because I actually have room. <laughs> because, <laughs> you know, I, I, he's let me down so much. I'm actually like, it was at the tipping point for me. Of, it depends on your others. But for me, there's definitely uh, a lot of room there and a, a wiggle room as well. I mean, um, yeah, I, I have it definitely in there. I have it in there just to tease it. To, to include a film that you've literally just watched, it just seems a bit of a knee-jerk reaction, doesn't it? Yeah, but I think, you know, it depends on, he, if we say our best top five, yeah, it depends on how much he liked his others. It's only ranking Tarantino. Well, the, right? the, the, yeah. the, the, the rule I always apply to this is we're not doing best, we're doing favourites. Yeah, true. Do you know what I mean? And that's what I always say with, you know, some of the films I'll pick or some of the choices I'll make. I'll blatantly say they're better films and they're better choices, but it's what I've enjoyed. 
Right, number five. We spent all the night. It's the one film that I've got a problem with, but I still quite enjoy it. And I know you guys have mentioned two or three. But I'm going to put Django at number five. Yeah, okay. Uh, reason being, as much as there are obvious flaws, there are some good points to that film as well. But we're just going to run through yeah? As much as it smacks me in the face, I'm going to definitely put Once Upon a Time at number four. Yeah. And the reason being, it mm. may go up higher in my list as time goes mm. on. Yeah. But like I say, having watched it only th- three or four hours ago, Number three, we've got to include Vezwa Dogs mm. uh, without a shadow of a doubt. Number two, Pulp Fiction. Ooh. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but number one, got to be Jackie Brown. Nice one. Yeah. Nice. That's good, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll go next with then. The, apart from Django. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> mine, mine is very similar to Neil's. Number number five, uh, it's, it's going to be Inglorious Bastards. It, it's a film that's grown on me over the years. Yes, it is self-indulgent. Yes, Brad Pitt's performance is ridiculous. I, I prefer it to Django and the Hateful Eight, and I'm so, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know. But again, I think you could easily swap this out with Kill Bill One or Two. I know a lot of people prefer the first one, but I actually, I think I probably prefer, prefer so. Kill Bill Two yeah. because yeah. it's I find it less self-indulgent and it's more like a western, uh, like a proper revenge flick. So yeah, you you could easily swap out Inglorious Bastards with Kill Bill Volume Two for me. Uh, number four, at the moment, as it stands, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, for me, isn't strong enough to break that top three, um, which for me are all 10 out of 10 films. Yeah. But I cannot wait to watch it again, and I, I am confident it is going to hold up on second, third, or fourth viewing. So Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is number four. Number three, as it stands today, is Reservoir Dogs. My top three would have been exactly the same as Neil's a few years back. Jackie Brown used to be my, t- my favourite Tarantino film. But then, when I was prepping for the wrong real episode a few years back and rewatched Pulp Fiction, having seen it loads and loads of times in the 90s and probably making myself a little bit sick of it, having had a good 10-year break from it and going back to it, it is just absolute perfection. So I'll put Jackie Brown at number two and number one will, will have to be Pulp Fiction. Nice. Yeah, lots of overlap here. Um, you can totally see where I'm coming from in my rankings. It's it's quite see-through. I, I, there are certain things that I think filmmakers and artists that peak early and they can never sort of recover. And in Tarantino's case, I think uh, with this like beacon of light at the end here, um, I, I just hope he goes on and doesn't keep to the weird 10 wide. Like, just keep going. Just uh, we, We're always for the better for having another Tarantino out there. So my number five is Once Upon a Time. Number four is Reservoir Dogs. I did the cheeky thing and did uh, Kill Bill 1 and 2 at number three because mm-hmm. when I saw that movie, when when I set both of them, I, I was livid. I was like, this is the movie I wanted to make. <laughs> I was like, yeah. If I had one story to tell, it was this kind of martial arts extravaganza, revenge, Japanese, uh, like first the Japanese, the second part, the Kung Fu, like – in it, it has parts in it that are over the top because, you know, coming from a funk and soul background, I, playing the two tough guys theme as Gordon Liu is Pai Mei fighting. Like, it's too much. I was like, wait, calm down. This is like, this, it's almost too obvious the choices. But I still love it. I, I still can. I, I love those t- two movies. So I did, I, I bundled them together as Kill Bill at number three. I put Jackie Brown at number two. And Pulp Fiction at number one because Pulp Fiction was just a cultural event when I saw it. When when this this is one of the first movies that where I was of my generation that came out where we all like we could claim this. It wasn't Star Wars. It was something where we could look a little smarter. Like I get this the way it was structured and the word of mouth was huge and it didn't disappoint. I feel it's still his most elegant movie in terms of the quotes and giving 
Travolta a second chance and Harvey Keitel in this. And it's just a modern film and you feel the history. And his dialogue is so what everybody does now. The kind of Marvel quotes, the comic book quotes. I mean, yeah, we all know Pulp Fiction. It's fantastic. I love Jackie Brown. I could have switched those two out, to be honest. Yeah. Uh, one or two. Yeah. So pretty similar. And yeah, I don't have any of his last runs since. Um, I, I wouldn't even, I don't consider them. I don't want to wa- look back at them. But but that's just for me. And I just hope the next one can can frankly not live up anymore to Pulp Fiction. So I think that train's gone, but, but can live up to Once Upon a Time. I mean, that's like... If you would have ended on this, I would have been fine. This is the Tarantino end. You end your career on this, you know? Like, how are you going to do now a Star Trek or whatever you're going to do, whatever he has coming up? For me, for for a filmmaker who's as obviously talented as he is, to set yourself a limit of 10 films, I, I, you don't need to do it. If you, if you want to start making films, start making films. Yeah. Come back in 10 years' time, make another one. Or it's don't, almost or, a, like, don't, 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 you don't. all will miss me, kind of, please. Exactly. It's so, it's so pretentious, isn't it? It's like, come on, I'll grow up. He's, he's, he's said it for, he said it so many times. He's always threatening that this is going to be his last film. And, it, you know, for someone who loves film as much as he does, it, it's bullshit. But, you know, if you're going to end on a, on, on a film. I would have ended on this. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> like you say, this, this is a more mature yeah. sort of take from Tarantino. But obviously, that's, you know. It's probably the most obvious thing to say. Look, what, what have you got? You've got the ultimate film geek who moves to Hollywood. He, you know, mm. he, he, he cuts his teeth in video archive, and then has got this dream rise up into you know the, the ranks of one of the most prominent and influential directors of the last twenty five years. He, you know, he goes out. He, he makes nine or ten films, depending on how you're going to look at it. And his last film, being the ultimate cinephile, is called Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah what a way to go out. Oh I don't, th- I don't think it will be. You cannot scripting... it. If you're scripting, if you're writing your own end as a scriptwriter, this is it. The Sergio Leone quote, just the, the fairy tale ending of just giving film uh, the power of film, showing what you can show an alternate reality and in and, and the good, shaping people's minds in the good and in the bad in terms of Bruce Lee but being just the power of film being out there as a, as a voice um yeah it's it's I, I'm curious but I'm again I'm I'm, I'm kind of like who I hope he I hope he hits that again I hope he he can find a good ending I'm, I'm rooting for him you know n- despite all the things I'm really always rooting for him same here yeah yeah definitely and like I said I don't, I don't think that- it is a perfect ending, but it doesn't need to be an ending, is what I'm saying. Yeah, no, I yeah. agree. I agree. I exactly. think there's, like, there's there's a few more. Just become John Houston. Just... Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just keep going until yeah, or or Clint Eastwood. Just keep going until old age catches up with him. Well, I say the difference is with Tarantino as well. I mean, Tarantino is a, you know a talented writer and is obviously you know inspired to write as well. Yes, and I think that we will be the thing that'll draw. Tarantino back into the fold is yeah. he's such a control freak as well that if he's got a story he wants to tell he wants to tell it his he's, way he's going to want to tell it his way yes he? exactly this is Batman and Robin with exclusive news for KHJ listeners the Batphone Secret Number Contest presented by Boss Radio. There's a terrific prize for the first KHJ listener to guess the secret number of our Batphone. You've seen us answering the Batphone on TV. It's a special hotline Commissioner Gordon uses to contact us whenever there's trouble. There are seven digits in the Batphone's secret number. Listen to what you'll win if yours is the first correct answer received by KHJ. You'll visit Batman and me at 20th Century Fox and be our guest for lunch at the studio. Then you'll ride to the Batcave in the Batmobile, where Robin and I will present you with a 1966 console color television set. To visit us and win the color TV, just guess the secret Batphone number. 
Watch for Robin and me on Channel 7 Wednesday and Thursday nights. And keep it on KHJ for more clues in the Batphone Secret Number Contest. Right, so we, we did put things out to social media, but before we come to that, one of the Film 89 team, Jacob Rivera, who you'll find on Twitter, at JRATM23, gave his top five as number five, Kill Bill 1 and 2. He did the same as you, Tony. Nice. Uh, number four, Jackie Brown. Number three, Inglorious Bastards. Number two, Reservoir no, Dogs. No, Jacob! <laughs> <laughs> number two, Reservoir Dogs. And number one, Pulp Fiction. On to, also on Twitter, Kev, Kevin Meany, who you'll find at Kev Meany. He says, for how it blew my mind when I first saw it in the cinema, my favourite is Kill Bill. So his number one is Kill Bill. Mm. He's, he's lumping them both together. Number two, Pulp Fiction. Number three, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Number four, Inglorious Bastards. Number five, Reservoir Dogs. So Once Upon a Time in Hollywood mm. is already his number three. Mm. He also says, honourable mention to True Romance, uh, his script for which was my introduction to Tarantino. Another friend of the podcast, uh, Stephen Simpson, you'll find on Twitter at Steve007. Number five, Django. Number four, Death Proof. Ooh. <laughs> number three, The Hateful Eight. Oh, come on. Yeah. No, number, number, <laughs> number two, he's done a, a, you know, the same as a lot of people. Kill Bill one and two, doesn't want to split yeah. between those two. And number one, Pulp Fiction. That's what, wow. Talking about Death Proof, that's one thing we forgot to mention, was... was Kurt Russell's character anything to do with stuntman well he, 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 he wasn't stuntman Mike but I think if he had been I would have maybe yeah. was tight. he stuntman Mike same dad. jacket <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, you've got Rod on Twitter at Rodney Honeybutt says number five Inglorious Bastards number four Django number three again Once Upon a Time in Hollywood so it's, it's going to a lot of people's top fives I'm, I'm, I'm glad even though I hate seeing all those Django and Inglorious Bastards yeah. songs I love that it's 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 uh, this film has yeah. made it already ahead of those so that's a good sign like number two is Pulp Fiction and number one is Kill Bill yeah no. we've got Judy Lemke that's at Judy yeah. Lemke she's got number five Inglorious Bastards number four Kill Bill number three again once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Number two, Reservoir Dogs. And number one, Pulp Fiction. You've also got on Twitter, Kenny Ritchie, who is at Zen Mizo. Number five, The Hateful Eight. Number four, Kill Bill. Number three, Reservoir Dogs. It's reached a high point of number two, wow. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And number one, Pulp Fiction. Rolf Kramer. At Rolf Kramer, also on Twitter. Number six. He's gone for six. Oh, okay, he's cheated, but so much. <laughs> number six, Kill Bill Volume 1. Number five, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Number four, Jackie Brown. Don't know if this one could be allowed. Number three, Dust Till Dawn. Uh, Listen, if you can include Dust Till Dawn, then I can include the 1987 masterpiece, Dolph Lundgren, Maximum Potential, yeah. Quentin Tarantino <laughs> worked it? as a production assistant oh, so that's yeah, the same yeah. thing okay. so you know don't get me You'll on that maximize your potential if, if you get a chance to watch that don't number, number two <laughs> number two is Reservoir Dogs and Rolf's number one as many people's is is Pulp Fiction uh, Serpa Sosalo I hope I'm saying that right on Twitter number five Kill Bill number four Jackie Brown number three have a guess Maximum Potential nope <laughs> it's, again it's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood so obviously you know, his new film is proving very popular with a lot of you number two Pulp Fiction number one Reservoir Dogs again on Twitter Nicholas at Nick underscore Santos he says he hasn't watched Once Upon a Time in Hollywood yet so his top five is number five Kill Bill Num in fact it's not in any order so I'm going to I'm going to read it in ascended order Kill Bill mm -hmm. The Hateful Eight Pulp Fiction Reservoir Dogs and Inglorious Bastards Hateful Eight 
Mm. Okay. And we've got, and this is going to be a bit of a mouthful, se underscore goodnight dash the bad guy, who is on Twitter at s the bad guy. Hey, yes. Yeah. It's good. And again, this is not in any particular order. It's Reservoir Dogs, Django, Hateful Eight, Inglorious Bastards, and Pulp Fiction. He says he's just got back from the movies after watching Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. He enjoyed it. Great actors, but it didn't make his top five as he was slightly disappointed. Oh, well, there you go. Mm. We are unanimously uh, positive in, in, in our sort of uh, admiration of Tarantino's latest film. But just to flip it the other way, if someone was telling you now, like uh, S.E., sorry, I can't remember the name, sorry, <laughs> the people were disappointed, I could also understand why people would be disappointed yes, in I this can. film. Yes, I can, I agree. And if you, I don't, if you this, don't buy into that ending... I think a lot of people could... Yeah. This film could definitely split people into two camps. And I would fully understand what I would understand yeah. either way, yeah. Yeah, massively, I, I, I do. And it's because I bought into that ending and because Steve did and because you didn't, because you did as well, Tommy, that, yeah, yeah. We, we're all being overwhelmingly positive about it. For I the, think, yeah, I feel, uh, again, it's a, it's a generation thing not to harp on about that but I feel a lot of the I mean it's in your title of your podcast it's in, among your themes and, and it's video store it's our generation this movie is a generation before us Tarantino we recognize our fathers mm. we recognize our environment that we grew up in even in the fantasy so being young and seeing this I don't know how it re- resonates it'd be interesting if they would have all put their ages in their rankings because I, I'm interested to see how much of the old pop fiction number one is probably our generation mm. yeah, because definitely. that's just what hit us and, and, and we appreciate we had seen so much before we come to this we we can place it in its proper light i think and so we are not also from a generation that doesn't get easily offended and so but like you said i wouldn't i wouldn't ever put anyone down coming out of this being disappointed or hurt or because i i certainly was hurt by some parts of it and i still loved it so yeah it has all of that which speaks very positively i think that the ingredients there's a lot of good stuff in the stew Plus, let's be honest, flamethrowers are fucking cool. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah is, there ch- is there a slight chance we can make this less hot? <laughs> <laughs> There's such no, an well, actor's note to yeah, a flamethrower. Yeah, it's a flamethrower. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and, and I love I love somebody mentioned it, I forget, maybe it was Kim Morgan or somebody really big or maybe somebody of our crew, but somebody said, I miss when people do their laundry in movies. And I, I thought that, yeah, and I, I miss, I love that Rick studies his lines. I, I just love those bits where he's, you see actually there's more to be an actor. You can just drive around and then he's on set. He's like, he has to memorize all this stuff. Yeah, definitely. Like you say, even to the fact, like you say, when he goes back and he's in the pool, he's still got to yeah. take the call to play in there, hasn't he, you know? With his Bavarian mug and, and sort of yeah, and, oh, yeah the, the Mad Magazine tie-ins and 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 like the the Jack Davis covers on TV Guide. I mean, it's all over the place. It's the Manix episode on TV. You're gonna go on and on about this film and, and discover it and as it unfolds. And, and it's yeah, good use I, of a kimono as well. I like to see a man in a kimono. Yes, that he's a tough guy coming out with that short. Like, <laughs> I'd love to have the confidence to wear a short kimono. <laughs> That's what you got to be real tough wearing that. In fact, in fact, if this, if I make a deal, if this episode. Goes Goes top ten. Film Twitter, you will get me in a in a film commotion. Yeah. Oh, nice! <laughs> Jesus. Oh, okay, Tony, thank you very much for coming on. It's been an it's absolute been pleasure talking about Tarantino and about this this film that we you know we we've got a mutual sort of love of Sony. You know, different topics. Thank you very much for your continuing work. We just love sharing your posters, and you know, it, it's I, I just don't understand how you crank these pieces out so quickly, and, and the quality is just so consistently high. It's just you know, and on top of that, you you seem you know, you've got an almost Joe Dante esque knowledge of film, which is just 
you know, it's just brilliant. It makes you the perfect guest to film 89, and we, we really hope you come back on soon. You can tell your love, you, you can tell your love, your love for film shines through your work as well. It does, it really apparent. does, it really does. Yeah, thank you guys. I mean, thank you for promoting. It was a pleasure to meet you, Neil. It was amazing, like Sky, that we talk, even though we talk all the time, but this is different. It's it different is, yeah, actually, yeah. talk in person. And uh, yeah, I love, I love the crew. I love that the origins I was at there, the inception of you, you talking about wrong reel and then James pushing you, and you actually going through with it and it's so rare and all the quality on your site and I, I love all the topics and I love all the other uh, people you have on I mean Bill Scurry and, and, and John Cribbs and Martin Kessler I mean this is really a family and like you say so many times like I try to push through and people say this is such a positive space where we all lift each other up and yeah I, it was a blast it was fantastic and I come on anytime talking about any sort of topics and this is actually very rare I think it's the first movie I talk to uh, about anybody that's out in the cinemas I mean I'm usually the guy you call <laughs> yeah. when it's like it's like a Kurosawa or Bayashi or something but yeah this, this this has been a lot of fun Tony's absolute pleasure mate I, I, I thoroughly enjoy talking to you tonight and I say I hope this is the first of many conversations you and I will have yeah, yeah for sure let's meet in person that's uh, that's, that's go- next time I'm in uh, somewhere in your neck of the woods we, we'll get together that's a deal buddy that's that a is deal. a deal Tony where can people find you on social media if they want to check out your work or just hit you up for a chat about film a lot of through you guys obviously and then my handle is studio t stella uh the other thing that i think is a pizzeria or something Tony <laughs> Stella, that's been taken but so it's studio t stella on twitter that's sort of the most fun where we all come together we we, we chat we retweet we, i will make a thread about this episode where we kind of uh, things we missed some images you can listen along to that uh, i always like to do that and then yeah it's tony minus stella.com that's the website tumblr is sort of going the way of the dodo they're censoring stuff now it's it's stupid they've curbed the format trying to become instagram or something but it's sort of yeah it's sort of always um i i think i'm if you put in tony stella movie poster it comes up uh, all the way through and yeah and hopefully i got good news soon with a book that's coming out at least on the japanese posters but it's sort of in the works and hopefully it's a bit delayed it was supposed to come out this year but maybe early next year or something like that well we should look forward to seeing that mate yeah thank you guys and yeah obviously don't forget alphaville design oh yeah for sure alphaville uh, minus design.com this is where i'm really blessed to work with one of the best movie posters designers out there the midnight marauder he's based in los angeles i'm in awe of his work and we met and he's sort of it's a rare thing these days where you can just sort of pass your work along and i know he will improve on anything i've done that's very rare and we sort of play this ping pong back and forth to where i'd send him some art and then he does his layouts and his, his graphics on top and his his fonts and yeah we've been getting really good projects really big recognition but it's definitely uh doing the don quixote work uh, against the windmills here i don't think the the future of this whole movie thing is is in question but once upon a time in hollywood certainly helps and it did raise a lot of chatter um about raise a lot of awareness about movie posters so i'm, I'm really thankful for that what you get like you say the way i look at it and i say i'm by no means an expert in this field but the way i look at it is i'm never going to put something that was computer generated on my wall whereas when i look at some of the work that you guys put out i'd happily have that on my wall yeah it's it's something unnameable that i i don't know how to define and maybe again it's generation bound and there are great digital 
whatever the tools are not the problem, yeah, but yeah. I think there's something that that's missing because it's a it's not supposed to be just a shot of the movie that gives you the appetite for the movie. It's fun to see somebody's interpretation of the movie because then the pieces live on and they have their own life. Uh, and and it, you see the artist's hand and you feel the haptic nature of the paper. You see uh, you see that some personal thought has gone into it and. The more we can get the different markets to have different versions again, I mean, in the heyday, actually 1969, in the heyday of, of these movie posters, we had every market have several posters. The German market had one for the countryside, for the bumpkins. They had one for the sophisticated cities. In Italy, sometimes four, five, six main posters, as well as the Locandinas, different formats had different artwork on top of them. So it's great how rich that world was and how many people it enabled to work and kind of our memories are all the richer for it. And I hope we can get it again and it's not just disappearing from giant movie billboards to uh, VHS covers and now we only get like, you know, uh, key art on Netflix. That's completely a, a sad state of the affair. But uh, luckily, I think there seems to be I, I still I still work more than ever. So it's a good sign. Excellent. Good Great. Day, Neil, where can people find you on social media if they want to hit you up for a chat about uh, film? Uh, of course, you can always find me on this on the uh, Filming Design Twitter page or you can find me at Neil underscore Gaskin. Fantastic. And you can find me on Twitter and Facebook at Sky Movies. And you can find all the Film 89 brew on Twitter and Facebook at Film 89 UK. And of course, you can find us all and all our written work at film89.co.uk. And I'd just like to say from all of the guys at the Film 89 podcast, I know we've been off the air for by the time this goes live, it'll be a month. But a massive thank you for your continued support. Since we've been off air and since our Chinatown episode with Bill Scurry, we have stayed within a very high position in the, in the Podomatic podcast charts and we are all just completely grateful to all of our followers. Look at our daily downloads clearly you're all recommending us to friends because it, we are still on the ascension and you know even when we have time off we're still pulling in you know the figures so we must be doing something right but you guys and girls out there must also be doing something for us by recommending us to other people because we're getting new followers on Twitter every day. We just love interacting with you guys. We're going to keep cranking out all of this content for you and it's all going to be completely free of charge you know we love doing it and it keeps us sane uh you know we've all got quite stressful day jobs and, and this sort of thing just you know it keeps it's us going yourself. yeah I'm much like a bruce wayne i'm a billionaire i just do this for the love of it please i know you know we keep saying it if you could just leave us you know a positive you know hopefully a five-star review on iTunes because that'll do us even more good given the strange way that iTunes works. But uh, until next episode, please, uh, you know, go through our back catalogue if you haven't heard everything. I'm sure you'll find something there to your enjoyment and please recommend us to your friends and family. Thank you, Tony. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. We hope to have you back on in future. And please check out Tony's uh, his artwork and also his previous appearances on Wrong Reel. He's just like a tornado. Once you unleash him on a topic of film, it's just impossible to stop him. You've just got to sit back and just be in awe of his brilliance. But Tony, it's been a pleasure. We hope to speak to you soon. But for now, as we usually say, stay safe, stay happy, but more importantly, stay classy.
You're Rick fucking Dalton. Don't you forget it.